One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 419 of Smashbox TV's podcast. I am your host, John Van Derzen. And not with me tonight, because he is mid-flight to Sweden, is Terry Miller, the disc golf guy. He came home for a few days, I think two days he got home, and then turned around, basically had a chance to kiss his wife and kids, and then he got onto a plane and is on his way to Sweden. I think he left this afternoon about 2 or 3 o'clock, but an I think an eight-hour flight, nine-hour flight before he lands, so he I don't even think he's going to land until about midnight our time. So here I am, all by myself, as the song says. We have a world's recap for 2022 tonight. Nothing exciting really happened, not that I remember. Uh, Just a few winners. Is this the second best worlds that we've seen in recent memory? It's it's hard to beat the holy shot from last year, honestly. Um, that had a lightning strike, once in a lifetime kind of feeling to it. Even though it was a pretty good round, I mean, if you remember, Kevin Jones was making a huge strike. There's the 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 very prominent cheer that he hits when he hits the big putt on the elevated basket. I forget which one it. Which, which hole it is, honestly, but he gives the the big fist pump. You see it in all the DGN commercials. And then, obviously, James Conrad with the shot. Then we go into overtime. Paul puts it in the water. James does not. Game over. It was a good round. But was it as good of a round as what we just saw at the 2022 Worlds? It's hard for me to say. I'd have to go back and watch that entire 2021 Worlds round again. And it's clearly probably just recency bias. But, ah, you know, this felt like a more exciting round. We had big putts throughout the round. And we had an exciting finish. We didn't get a single miracle shot, but we had 
hole 17's putt, which kind of felt like it, very reminiscent of USDGC hole one when Paul put it in for the win, although this wasn't for the win. Um, it, it was just in general a, a phenomenal world. I, I know, you know, not to harp on anything negative, it's not everybody's cup of tea when it comes to the courses. The courses, I liked the courses personally. I've been on record saying that in general, I enjoy a variety of courses. This year, we got a more open flavor. Next year, we're going to have a more wooded flavor. Because there's there's going to be a great argument next year, and no one will have it because everyone loves the, uh, the GMC courses, that the courses don't have enough distance and openness. Because out there, there's almost no place to unload. There's maybe one or I'm sorry, probably there's probably two holes out in GMC where you truly can just fire without really too much thought of OB. That wasn't the case here. There were quite a few holes where you could just literally unload and distance was your advantage here. GMC, not the case at all. We saw the last time GMC was here, Greg Barsby and uh, it was Paige Bierkus at the time. Now Paige Shu won. There's no distance advantage at GMC, um, unlike here. So here we had different courses, a little bit more open, not not so much, almost very little, as we'll say, off the tee at least, shot shaping. Um, you could throw a forehand or a backhand off most of the shots, and then you had to react to where your lie was. I, I think Dixon Jower said it best when he played the practice round there. Um, Jones, you're advantaged by playing very close to the OB to give yourself great um, second angles. The closer you can get to the OB, the better. Of course, the closer you're going to get to the OB, the scarier your drive is going to end up. Um, we saw some really great play out of these courses and some exciting play, some dominant play. Um, I'm going to read over the board just a little bit. Uh, I did. I do want to say Jay Tyrus brings it up, and I did predict in FPO, which we'll probably talk about first, the three Europeans on the league card. I asked Terry the question: How many Europeans would be on the league card for the final round? He went with the. He went with two, and to be different, I wanted to go uh, something different, and I did have a really good feeling that we were going to see. I, I figured we'd see at least two, so I didn't want to say one. So I, I, I stretched a little bit and said three. And that's what we got. We got the three top Europeans. We got Tatar, Salonen, and uh, Blumros. So, and with a Holland Hanley thrown in there. Awesome. So yeah, I will take a little bit of credit for that and say that we did definitely, uh, I, I did predict that. Although, you know, it's not like I went out on a huge limb there after day one. It was close. I'm sorry. Evelina dropped off the lead card for a day or two, kind of came back, and we got the final round out of there. So I am going to take that prediction. Um, And for everybody's knowledge, I did actually reach out to Aaron Gossage, and he did respond to me via his Instagram, and I asked if he wanted to be on the podcast tonight. He got back to me kind of late because he said he was out playing. He's on, I'm assuming he's on his way to Vermont. And he basically just said, oh, sorry, I'm getting this really late. I'm going to be, of course, in the van tonight. And I just don't think it's going to work out, but let's schedule it for another night. So hopefully we'll get Aaron Gossage on sometime soon. Um, I did not reach out to Paul. Uh, I did not reach out to Kristen. 
uh, I don't know Kristen. I don't honestly. I'm not sure if I know Kristen well enough to reach out to her. I don't know if she would join. Paul, I could definitely reach out, or Hannah, I could reach out. I've had, I've talked to both of them. They've been on the show before, and you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm friends with Hannah, whether she likes it or not. Let's talk about FPL. Kristen Tatar just stomped the field. Period. Like in that final round, by round, by the. I mean, according to Udis, by the end of round one, it was over practically because she had she started at like a 60 percent chance to win probability. And by the end of round one with her lead, I think it was up to like 70 or something, 65, 70, 75. Udis correctly kind of called it over, although, again, I think we can we can make an argument, as I have, that I think starting someone out at 60 percent. Might seem a little bit high, but you know it's their it's their formula, it's their numbers. They're clearly doing something right. I think Steve Hill from UDisc at one point even said that UDisc even predicted the number of strokes she'd win by. See behind the scenes, they don't that one that wasn't public. Although I'd like to see that public. I'd like to see what their prediction model is, and then we can all go to you know prize picks and see if we can beat the odds and see if we can take them for all their money. But anyway, Kristen Tatar, your 2022 FPO champion. What's there to say other than she's crazy consistent? Injury and all, and it. And I'm not even going to bring that into it because she didn't appear to be injured in the slightest. Uh, she was on her game. There was not any room for anyone else to win this event. She shot 38 under par for the round, for five rounds, you know, so that's averaging seven and a half or so under par because she had a bad, I think she shot a three down on the second round or something. No one could keep up with her. She's just that consistent. Very few bogeys and a crap ton of birdies. And her putting was mostly on. She had some off moments, I would say, and in one or two rounds. But in general, she has such a good, consistent putt that she is not losing many strokes to these people. And if she continues to play like this with a good amount of distance, a very solid upshot game with her backhand and forehand, she tends to lean on her forehand a little bit for her upshots. There were, I would say, one or two instances, and it might be injury-related, injury that I felt that maybe the forehand wasn't the right shot. But she still, in general, when I looked at it and said, eh, I'm not sure if I'd go forehand there, she was putting it close enough to put the putt in. So who am I to second guess? And her putting. I mean, she had what? Uh, let's, let's look at her profile here on Udisc for the event for 2022 Worlds. Her putting, her circle one putts, 80%. 80%. And now, granted, that's only 27th in the field. But when you are so consistent at getting in there, there is there's nothing you can do. Because it tends to be our best putters don't aren't usually our best drivers. 
Tatar seems to have a very great balance between the two of them. She drives far enough. She's pushing 350 to 400 feet when she wants to. She's not quite up to where Ella and uh, probably Paige and Holland Handley are right now. But she doesn't need to be because she does not put herself in bad positions. So I, I don't know what these women can do to, to beat her at this point. She is the only way she loses is if she beats herself. If she continues to play the way she is. I would say that uh, Latitude 64 is getting their money's worth. <laughs> she was the, was it four years, $500,000? 200, no, $250,000 for two years? I forget what the number is. I thought it was four years at 500000 or something like that. But maybe that was what Kona got. Hmm, doesn't matter. Latitude 64, raking it in with uh, Tatar. Arthur, uh, Arthur Backass, do I hunt mushrooms? No, I don't. I'm not a mushroom person. Um, the other two Europeans, uh, Blumros and Salonen, drove the disc very well. Maybe even better than Tatar. Unfortunately, they can't putt. They go through some of the worst yips and I don't want to call it yips because that that entails a almost a clinical issue with a specific thing they just literally have um, there's something wrong with their putting form that they need to look at and get fixed <laughs> uh, they will miss both of them will miss 12 footers Solonin a little bit worse, it seems like, at times. She just tends to kind of just miss the basket. And it, it appears to be the style of her putt. The kind of wristy flick that she kind of just gets up there with a hand. There's, it doesn't feel like it's a real solid um, putt. And, and, and I, don't, I haven't looked at Henna's form. I'm not a form expert. I never have been. But I haven't looked at Henna's form enough to know... To, to even begin to realize what she's doing wrong. Um, I can look at Solomon's and immediately point out just the weird flick that she has with her wrist. I, I would, and I'm not unique in saying this because I think a lot of people have said this. I would love it if she were to be able to focus when she's inside the circle, maybe at more of a, uh, a waist to basket putt, you know, from right from a belly button straight out. With a little bit of spin, I mean, you still might miss a little left and right, but if you keep the disc flat, you're not going to get as much distance on your putts. It's it's a little harder to generate power than it is with the way she's doing it. But you're going to be more consistent. And there are times Henna, I'm sorry, and there are times Evelina is is on, and she's hitting. She hit a couple of really long putts, more of approaches, but there are times she drops some pretty big putts, and then there's times she doesn't. And I don't know what to do about that other than practice, practice, practice. Literally, I think that's all you can do. Hopefully, they're taking this really seriously. I know in the offseason last year, they kind of put their discs away, did winter sports, as one is probably, you know, going to do where they're from. Um, 
but they're from Finland, by the way. So, so everyone knows. Um, but I don't know if you can do that. I think you need to get inside and just, just literally focus on, on 25 feet. That's the magic number right there. Just consistently hit 25 footers. If you can consistently hit a 25 footer with a flat putt, you can hit a putt anywhere inside of that. Outside of that, you need to kind of start arcing them a little more or aiming a little higher or lower. It's a little wishy-washy, but either way, that's, I think that's what they need to do. They probably know that. I'm really literally screaming at the clouds right now for, for what everybody in the world knows. Ultimately, they would have put up a much... Henna probably could have won if she could have put together even... I mean, she lost by eight strokes. If she could have put together putts from the last two rounds, you know, you're looking at... Three, four... She missed five inside the circle putts that last round... You give her 80% of that. She's hitting four of those. She probably missed that at least in the final, in the second to last round as well. I mean, we know we watched her have that epic meltdown where she was, you know, tearing up on, I think it was the 16th. Did she do that on 15? And then she did that and she was tearing up on the 16th or 16 to 17. No, it wouldn't have been 16 in the island hole. So I think it was 15 to 16. And she'd be right there with her. She'd be pushing Tatar. But nobody other than Tatar pushed her. Um, every time we thought someone might kind of get close, Tatar just kept her foot on the gas and and didn't let anyone get within arm's reach of her. There was never... It, it had to have been a very strange feeling to know that no one's catching you. Going, And I know she doesn't think this way, according to her interviews. But if I were her, the way I was playing and the way I was feeling... I would have thought by about the fourth hole after you have two birdies and you're maintaining your distance, probably the fourth or fifth hole. I would have thought I got this, I got this under control. You know, this, this is mine to lose. I've, I personally have had those thoughts at events where I knew I was going to win with five or six holes to go. Where as long as I didn't do something outrageous, um, I could literally just walk it in. And I have thankfully. And it's a strange feeling because there's less excitement when you tap in that final putt than it would be for the way that, for instance, it went down in MPO. Everyone loves a win. No one's going to argue with that. So, uh, Henna and Evelina. Yeah. They'll they'll get it. They'll get it. They're young. Like 21. They're Today, the, today they were in Chicago with Jen Allen. I think on their way over to GMC, I'd assume, or maybe maybe they're going to uh, uh, Canadian Nationals. I haven't looked at what their schedule looks like, or maybe they're flying out and they're not doing GMC. I don't know. I haven't looked at their at their particular uh, future events yet. But they're young, twenty one years old. Tatar is in her early thirties, thirty three, thirty four. I mean, those two women have so much in front of them that I'm not concerned. Take a couple losses, you know. Get it out of your system. Move on. They're both going to probably win a world championship at some point in the next five years, I would say. 
But let's move on to our American representation on the lead card, one Holland Hanley. Um, she's a little bit older than the than the than the than the Finns. Uh, I believe she's 24, 25 maybe. Comes from a background of volleyball, powerlifting. We've had her on the show. And I think she has a bright future in front of her for the next five to seven years. At least. I can't see what players are going to come up in that time. She crushes. She crushes a disc. And she's got a very solid putt. Um, It's nothing spectacular yet. It's not like Tatar's. Holland has not, she, she definitely doesn't have like the, the weird flaky air balls, but she gets in, she's a little bit streaky yet, a little left, a little right at times, a little high, a little low, but she's, again, she's a young player respectively in the golf scene, two to three years. So I'm, I'm really excited to see what she can do in, in the next couple of years with her power. Um, and, this the these courses probably set up very well for her right now because they relied on a little bit more power so it did set her up for a good chance to win not win no one was being tatar let me let me back that statement up they it set her up for a good chance to finish strong in fact going into that fourth round i looked at the top 4 women and i said of if if anyone was going to catch Tatar, it was going to be Holland Hanley. And she was further back than Henna at the time. Uh, by like two strokes, I think. Was it? Uh, yeah, Tatar had Bloomers by five and then Holland by seven. And I didn't think Tatar was going to lose, but in my head I thought, meh, just knowing the way that uh, Henna and Evelina seemed to be affected more by the pressure of the situation. And I think Holland coming from a, a very strong sports background, I thought she could maybe hold up a little bit better than the, uh, than, than the other two women. Clearly she didn't catch her. <laughs> so, but I think Holland Hanley has a really good future. Um, props to DD for grabbing her a couple like last year. I think maybe my co-host Terry Miller had a little bit to say in that after, uh, after Holland, showed up on the scene. I think there might have been a call in the behind the some back channels to Emac, who's a good friend of us in the show. So uh f- actually so fourth place was Missy Gannon. Missy Gannon had a pretty solid final round shooting a, a six under and worked herself up a, a spot from fifth to fourth. Paige Pierce shot a seven under par. Uh was never in it all weekend was at 2200 par lost to Tatar by 16 strokes. I I would say by the second round, I think everyone kind of knew that Paige just again, no one was going to seem like seemingly uh maybe not by the second round cuz second round Tatar had a kind of a weak round. I'd say by the third round. By the third round, everyone more or less had it written off for Tatar and that she would have to have an epic collapse. Not epic, a collapse to uh to lose. But Paige Pierce either way Fifth place. This breaks her streak of since what 2012, 13 of first or second places. She was on that same Paul Macbeth kind of path where she had just always finished at the top. 
And so this broke her streak of that. Ultimately, I mean, I would love to say fifth place is nothing to scoff at, but for when you have your sight set as high as some of these women in the field, like Paige Pierce, Katrina Allen, um, Kristen Tatar, Henna, Evelina, who all walked onto this course with a chance to win. I would think fifth place is a, fifth place is a little bit of a disappointment. And I'm sure she feels that way. And I bet you it drives her. And I'm going to predict that she wins GMC. I don't care who's playing. I think Paige is going to win GMC. Um, Because GMC is a good... A good mix of controlled distance. Now, Paige could have some issues. She does get a little wild in the woods. And the way she, the, with the power she throws, when she hits a tree, they do tend to ricochet off. But I think Paige is going to take home GMC. Um, and show everybody that she's still around. I think it's uh, it's good to good for her. Um, as we saw, Evelina drop down to fifth. Own Scoggins, my favorite, one of my favorite. No, my favorite player. I'm going to say it right now. Own Scoggins is my favorite player on the court on the course right now. Um, she gutted out the weekend after getting uh, some sort of groin pull on. I think the second day we saw her limping. And then every day she's got a little bit better and a little bit better. Thankfully, <laughs> unfortunately for her, she does not throw with a ton of power that it's going, especially backhand, that, it's, that the groin pull really affected too much of her. A lot of her throws are forehand, uh, overstable discs that flex out and go almost exactly where she wants them. And then she drops in 60 foot putts. That's what Owen does. And she smiles and laughs and high fives everybody. Um, if I had a dream foursome right now, Own would be on it right now for, I don't care the course, get me on a card with Own because I think it's going to be the most fun uh, you're going to have. But being our master's current world champion, so she is over 40, two-time, by the way, so I think she's 41, Own taking seventh place, it doesn't matter, honestly. and. If these courses, if if Worlds was held on different courses this year, and maybe we'll see it next year, depending on how Own uh, continues to hold up, I don't see why Own could not win an Open World Championship if the courses are wooded. I, I think she could be right there. She's she has been in contention almost every week. At some point, you look at it and go, "Really, Own? How does Own Scoggin still have a chance to win?" She's just so very. Reliable. Uh, eighth place, Cat Merch had shot an eight under to jump up a couple spots. Um, again, another long thrower. That's what these courses, these courses really favored the distance thrower. Let's be honest. I liked the courses, but they were favoring distance. You could you could see it with you know the people who finished at the top, other than Own Scoggins. <laughs> um, I guess that's Missy Gannon. She she isn't she's not a slouch, but she's not known as one of our longest throwers. Haley King jumps up uh, after shooting a seven under par, jumps up a few spots to take ninth. And uh, I would argue that maybe one of the top FPO players of the year, uh, Valerie Mondejano, rounds out your top 10. I don't have a lot more to say about FPO other than they kind of crushed it. Like, 
it was exciting golf. It was exciting to watch. I mean, we again, we all kind of knew who's going to win after about the second round. Maybe it's the third round. But there was some really fun and exciting golf to be had. So, uh, Zach P says, call in Tyler Brickley. I mean, if Brickley's out there and he wants to jump on, he's he can he can arrange that with me. Uh, but you know, he knows he knows how to reach out to me. He knows how to reach out to me. I've got I've got my my messages open. Um, let's talk about MPO a little bit. This was the more exciting of the two tournaments that went on. And one tournament, two divisions. So exciting of the two divisions. And as we all know, Major Macbeth showed up. That's what he does. I really, truly believe that Paul has gone from, and maybe maybe I'm wrong, I think he used to care about the National Tour and Elite Series events. I think he did. And I think he used to put forth a lot of effort into them. I don't think that's the case as much. I don't think Paul likes to lose. But there's something about the majors that Paul digs down deep and he puts 102% effort in, or 110, or 150, or whatever that number is that, that, that Paul Macbeth can pull out that nobody else can. He does that for the majors. Because they're the ones that mean the most. They're, that's the number he's compared to everyone. Nobody cares how many Elite Series wins you have. Nobody cares how many National Tours you've won. The number is World Championships and Elite Series. It's not even... Uh, European Opens or USDGCs or anything like that. I mean, if that's all you have, uh, we'll, we'll take a, like a Will Shoestrick, who has three majors, I believe. I don't think he has a four. I think it's just three. And all three are USDGC wins. Congratulations. Or uh, Nate Sexton, who has a USDGC win. Jeremy Colling, who has a USDGC win. That's great. You have a major. And it's always kind of qualified by they have a, a major USDGC win. It's a major. I mean, to me, USDGC, now Champions Cup, European Open, the Japan Open when it was a major, they're all kind of A-minus majors compared to the World Championships, which is an A-plus major. That's the one you want to win, period. That's the one that matters the most to all these to all these guys. And until you get a Worlds, it's great to win a USDGC, and that's awesome. And you know it takes just as much talent and skill to win that one as it does every other event, but it's just not held in the same standard as Worlds. Like that's the one that everyone looks at. And Paul Macbeth, <laughs> much like the the line in Jurassic Park, life finds a way. That's Paul Macbeth. Paul Macbeth finds a way. That dude has that fifth gear, sixth gear, seventh gear to be able to always be in it. You know, we see him at the Elite Series events, and he'll, you know, sorry, Paul, he has a bad first round. And you look at him, you're like, oh, geez, he's like nine strokes off the leader. Yeah, gosh. All right, well, whatever. We all know it's coming. 
We all know he's going to shoot the course record or close to it that second round. And by the end of the event, if he's not winning it, he's like in second or third place. But lately, these Elite Series, he hasn't been getting those wins. And he hasn't been in contention for a win. But that's not the same at the majors. You know, he... he everybody knew from the minute. There was no one, no one at, at any point in this event counted Paul McBeth out. And that guy gets to the final round and manages to find a way to pull out the victory. From the jaws of defeat. I mean, we all saw what happened. I, 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 I did something today, guys. I did something. I went through and grabbed some of the highlights for the final round. And I want to quickly kind of go through this final round to let everybody know or get your opinion on what you think happened. It was a battle between Aaron Gossage and Paul McBeth. And now Tristan Tanner from the chase card was starting to make a run. I think he got within four at one point, three maybe, if I remember. Because we got a little excited in the controller. I'm like, oh, a second card winner. If, you know, if these guys fall off, which I, I didn't think it was going to happen. But if they did, we have to, in the control room, have to be ready for that. We were looking at a possible Tristan Tanner second card win, and I thought it was awesome. But ultimately, it didn't matter. He he was he was outshined by the play of Aaron Gossage. And shout out to Aaron Gossage! What a week. Um, I hope we see more of him. He, I mean, he's clearly a power thrower. He's got both sides of the disc down forehand, and backhand. He's got a pretty decent putt. Um, you see him come from low to high on those putts. I think he's got some issues with elevated putts whether they're up high or down low that he might need to work on because just because of the angle he's attacking at um he can get into a little bit more trouble than someone like paul who who just has his crazy consistent putt but it seems like it doesn't matter the position aaron gossage can throw and i'm excited to see aaron throw in some of these other courses because is he more of a uh, we'll say like a Brody Smith type player where these open courses really suit him well because he can throw far and he can hit both sides of the disc. Or does he have that extra setting where he can shape shots as well? Because as I said, we didn't see a ton of shot shaping out here. We You needed distance and accuracy. Pinpoint, be able to drop your hyzer or, an, or, or forehand hyzer down into a spot to get to that optimal second spot. So can he weave his way through a woods? We've yet to see. But starting it, we'll, we'll kind of look at a, a few highlights from the final round between Gossage and Macbeth. And it started on hole one. Aaron Gossage got up to hole one, was looking at a birdie shot, had a 20-foot putt, and dinked it right into the front of the basket. It was the one of the few times we saw Aaron miss. And at that point, Paul walked up for his birdie and dropped it in. Right there, I'm not lying, everyone in the control room 
did the Philo and went, no, 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 no. Because there was blood in the water. Whether that was perceived by everybody outside, I don't know if that's how Paul felt if, or if Paul just saw it as another opportunity. I don't know. But you could feel, I guarantee you, around the world, we all looked at Gossage and we all thought, ugh, is this guy going to fall apart? Is the final round pressure going to crush him? You know, the, 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 the sports saying is, you know, these high pressure situations, do you turn to dust or do you turn to diamonds? And I say, honestly, Gossage turned to diamonds on this round. He only shot, only, throwing it in quotes, a seven under. But that was still a hell of a round. So we get to the first hole. He misses the putt. Paul comes up and gets it. Um, Gossage does get the a birdie on the next hole. And Paul loses it. So right away, we're back at that same that same uh, uh, differential of strokes. Then we go to the third hole. Paul parks that and gets the birdie on three. Gossage, we get to the fourth hole. They both, I think Paul parks the fourth hole and Gossage is left with like a, 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 a 30 footer. A nervy 30 footer that after hole one, we weren't sure if he was going to hit. Nails it. Not a problem. At this point, I think we got ourselves a game, folks. Macbeth got it. Gossage got it. Unfortunately, Macbeth then got uh, the next two that Gossage didn't. And on hole six, Macbeth walked up to like a 35-footer because it was just outside the circle. Drops, you know, gets in. And let me say on this round, and you can talk to any of the guys in the control room. Every time one of these guys walked up to a putt, I tried to predict whether they were going to make it or not. I went went with a gut feeling. That was right on all of them but one. I think out of the six or seven putts that outside the circle, I kind of made it an outside the circle thing. I missed one of them. I forget which one it was. Somewhere in the middle. Uh, the guys go through the round. We get up to, th- you know, 13. Macbeth hits a big putt after skipping long left. And we get up to hole, was it hole, uh, you know, the island hole, hole 16, which is kind of where, well, let's put it this way. Paul bogeyed 15. I, I forget exactly how he did that. Um I don't have the I don't have it up in front of me right now. I don't have that highlight up in front of me of all of all things. Um, oh, no, that's right. I remember it's the hyzer shot. Paul throws a low hyzer, hits the branch, falls down, rolls like 30 feet to the right out of bounds. And puts his hands on his head and is just in disbelief. I was in disbelief at that roll. It was one of the worst strokes of luck that I think I've seen in, in quite a long time. It was not a great throw. He needed to be out wider and higher and spiking it in. He came in at a lower angle, but then got the worst kick. And I swear to God, at that point, I thought, oh, my Paul is going to Paul is going to lose this because of the worst luck. He had the holy shot. And then this like that's what was kind of starting to run through my head. 
and then we get up to 16, and they both make the island, but Macbeth is just eight or nine feet closer than Gossage. Gossage runs at the putt, hits front basket, and falls. And you know Macbeth is running that all day long and drains it. Knocks down the putt on 16. We move over to 17. And Paul has... Just... Wait, do, I, do I have it here? Let me see if I have it. Uh, no, this is Paul's approach. He, he has a horrible, a horrible drive. Throws it into the ground. Has a, a very mediocre spot to shoot from. Needs to throw it about 450 feet, 480 feet to the basket through some trees. It has to get high enough to be able to get the distance, but the higher you go, the tighter the trees get. And the dude pured it, just pured it. Leaves himself 70. Gossage has a phenomenal throw, puts it deep, and then just muffs his approach. He just threw a spike forehand hyzer that didn't have a chance. And I don't know if he just short-armed it. I don't know if he didn't get it out wide enough. I don't know if he was scared of the pine tree that was there. And ended up way right. And then we get the putt. And I, I'm telling you, I called it. I called this putt right, right here. He looked at it and I go, and I literally said, this guy's going to hit this. He's going to hit it. Because this is the type of putt Macbeth hits. Like, iconic. He has that drive in him that other guys just don't seem to be able to hit a calmness he wears a somebody made a comment that he wears like one of these bracelets that keeps track of your heartbeat and your your all your your physiology stuff i want to see that breakdown i want to see the timing of when he hits these putts how quickly his heartbeat goes up how how calm he is if it goes up and down during these things, I want to see that from Paul McBeth because I think that would be amazing. Amazing to do a comparison between... Because Gossage looked cool. He didn't look razzled. He didn't look shaken. He didn't look any of those things. But McBeth just... can't let it go. <laughs> he just can't lose. He just doesn't let it. It's not in him. So he hits the big putt on 17, walks up to 18... They both have a, a, a good drive. Gossage throws a huge forehand, spikes it under the basket. We're talking an eight-foot drop, and there's not a chance he's missing it. And Macbeth goes under the tree straight at it, just like he's done in the last couple of days, and comes up short again, I believe. I think he did it the day before, too. And he had about a 60-footer, 50-footer, maybe, because it was inside circle two. So it was probably about 50-foot to win or to tie. Technically, it would have been to tie because Gossage then would have got a birdie and win, but whatever. Um, and doinks it, front basket. like, And we go to a playoff because Gossage taps in. You know, Macbeth makes that, Macbeth wins. And I was a little surprised he didn't hit that putt, to be honest. Um, but there's a little bit of... There's a little bit of justice in the world that Paul Macbeth gets to go to another playoff at Worlds with a, to an island hole with a chance to win. They get up to the island hole, they flip a coin, Gossage goes first, 
comes up short on the island. And we'll talk about the island in a minute because I've seen a lot of people complain about the island. And then all Macbeth has to do is put it on the island. And that is not a hard job for any of these guys. Gossage looked like he played a little fancy, tried to get it close. Because as we discussed during the round, he went deep, hit the wall, and then had a tough putt. So I think he short-armed it a little bit in reaction to that and just came up just short of the OB line. He was dry, but just short of that OB line. And at that point, unless he puts it in from the drop zone, which we only saw, I think, one other person do. I think it was Coling put it in from the drop zone. Macbeth could lay it up for the win, which is exactly what he did. Now, I think Gossage made a tactical mistake on 16 in the playoff by not just crushing it onto the island. And maybe that's what he tried to do, and he messed up, and it just looked like he was trying to get a little bit fancy and closer than he did the first, uh, the previous round. But you can't leave that open. You can't, you can't let, you can't make it so all Paul Macbeth has to do is hit the island and win. You know, at least if you put it on the island, even if you're back by the, the wall, and Macbeth just does the, the same thing, then you have a chance at least to win it with a putt. If you want to make try to go for that putt, you both run the chance. You're both probably going to be at 30, 35 feet running at that basket. Maybe maybe a little closer. Maybe it's 25 feet. I don't know. But you can't make that mistake. And Gossage did. And that's why Paul McBeth is now the six-time world champion. Spoiler. Yeah, so again, um, Major McBeth gets it done. Unfortunately, Aaron Gossage, you know, what's what's going to become of Aaron Gossage? Time will tell. Seems like a pretty solid guy. Great mustache. Good competitor. Well-spoken. Had nothing but accolades for him, for Macbeth. Um, great things to say. And he's going to just keep going out and playing. Th- there's a lot of talk about, um, how m- you know, uh, if you look out on the internets, how much did this cost him, Aaron Gossage? And financially, probably cost him a lot of money. Um, you win worlds, you get a disc, ton of royalties. Probably he gets moved up, and he probably still will get moved up to the touring series. Because I don't believe he is right now. He's got no tour disc, and he just—it's a year of you being the world champ. So, I mean, you're talking tens of thousands of dollars, maybe $100,000 you lose out on by not, by taking second versus winning. Now, again, he'll probably get moved up. He'll get himself a Tour Series disc next year. You, you, if you're Discraft, you can't not do that. I mean, he's, he's there. He pushed Paul McBeth to the brink. And... So he's he's gonna make some he's gonna make some of that up, but when it comes to stature and popularity online, I don't know if winning worlds would have changed that for Aaron Gossage. Because just like I said, he took Paul Macbeth to an extra hole, the nineteenth hole, so to speak. So I don't think he's winning any more fans by winning worlds than what we saw. He's definitely losing out on some money, but 
I think he's going to be okay. I think he's going to be, he's going to, he's going to, you know, stock this away as an experience. If, if he's lucky, he gets back up there. You know, there's no guarantees. There's so many good players right now that Aaron Gossage may never make another lead card at a world championship. Or he could make three more in the next 10 years. With the way the competition is going, it feels like the only guaranteed thing is that you're going to see Paul McBeth on the lead card on the final day. That is the only guarantee in this world year after year. Uh, And I don't know what else to say about that. Uh, Tim Court says JVD needs a puppy next to him. I don't have a puppy and I don't need a puppy next to me. I like animals. I like other people's animals. So Paul McBeth and Aaron Gossage, one and two. Third place, like we said, Tristan Tanner coming off the chase card. Not only the chase card, the B-Pool champion, the people's champ. The B-Pool is like, you know, it's like the uh, the unwashed masses. Those the, those are your average players, your average thousand rated players. You're, you know, anywhere from, you know, 1,010 down to 970. That's your B-Pool players right there. The guys that really in theory, don't have a chance to win Worlds. They're at Worlds hoping to cash and have a fun time and experience Worlds. I know I've been in those pools. I've been in the Worlds B pool and the Worlds C pool, I think. And once, for Am Worlds, the K pool. Yeah, K. I think we were like D, E, F, G. H I J and K or something. Really, it was 2004 Worlds. It was in Michigan. No, 2000. I'm sorry. It was 2000 in Worlds in Michigan. Ton of players. I was in the K pool. That's how a. That's how bad I shot. But b. That's how how many players there were. Um, DD's own Chris Clemens takes tied for third with Tristan Tanner and Matty O. Matty O had a shot an eight down that final round. Uh, couldn't get close to the win. He started out real slow. Par par bogey. Never, you know, at that point, it kind of knocked him out of any chance he had to win. We all knew that Matteo would have had to shoot like a 13 probably to have a chance to win. Um, or maybe, maybe a 12 or a 10 or 12 or 11 if both Gossage and Macbeth faltered. But, you know, that's that's that didn't happen. Sixth place, uh, Calvin Heimberg has a, a very disappointing four under on his final round. Again, he was another player that by like the seventh hole, he was out of it. There was no chance for Calvin to come back. He was one under through six. And after that, Calvin was no no chance. So he was shooting for a, a at that point, I'm sure mentally he doesn't care about a podium finish. Most of these most of these top players, your Matty O, your Paul McBath, Calvin Heimberg, Dickerson, they don't care about podiums. They care about the win. Now, if you're Tristan Tanner, if in general, if you're Aaron Gossage, maybe even Chris Clemens, that top three is something to brag about, something to write home about. Uh, seventh place, sneaky Joel Freeman shooting a nine down, jumping up like five or seven spots up to seventh place, tied with uh, AB, who for a, a hot minute, there was we were thinking AB had a chance. Now it would have had to, it would have required. Because he started out seven out of eight, and then just went super cold. But at, after that seventh, you know, we were all thinking, "Holy crap, is AB just going to go beast mode?" 
didn't happen. AB came down to earth. Ninth place, Discraft's Ben Calloway. Tied with uh, Nate Sexton. Continuing to just finish in the top 10 in majors. That guy, um, much respect for him, man. He's he He doesn't play as much as some of these other guys at these events, but always manages to find a way to to just be that really consistent player. Again, not a huge driver, but has a great forehand and a pretty gosh darn good backhand and a very solid putter. It was enough for 10th play or ninth, technically tied for ninth place. And the disappointment of the weekend, unfortunately, are the next two players, which is Ricky Wysocki and Chris Dickerson. Both of them had much higher hopes than a quote-unquote top 10 finish or around there. Um, Wysocki clearly being in Emporia, his new sponsor, a place where he's won before, he wanted to finish much better, and he just couldn't get it done. Shot a, a three down the final round, but even before he went into the round, he was he was not in it. And Dickerson, um, he had to shoot a nine under just to get to 11th or 12th. I'm sorry, 12th. So th- there was no chance for Dickerson either. Both those guys, again, they're, they're, they're your A tier, top tier players. I've been <laughs> a lot of fantasy football drafts lately. So I've been putting people in tiers. Um, they're your top tier players and they'll continue to be in that top five to 10 at worlds for the foreseeable future. So we have, uh, we have a lot going on. So congratulations to everybody at Worlds. Um, it was a great broadcast, great event. Um, PDG, I thought, did a great job. Um, Emporia. I like Emporia. I know that might be a hot take to some people because I'm sure I'm going to get a ton of backlash that people find the course. I know. I've read them all. People find the course is boring. They're, there's there's no... Uh, personality is what I've heard people say. Um, some of the holes, they run together in your head. I like the country club. I think it's a good course. I think it has a lot of memorable holes. I think some really cool, unique holes. Um, they do what they can with their property and they're not blessed with thick woods. They're not blessed with, you know, a, a lot of huge water features. And so what you get is you get a course with Artificial OB. I I don't know what you can do, but for what they're given, I like those courses. They're not my favorite courses, but I like them. And honestly, this this might sound silly. They did everybody a favor because nobody else was bidding for worlds. So just remember that. If you complain about the courses, just remember, without this, I don't know where they would have been. Maybe they would have gone to the IDGC? Possibly. But then the PDGA hosts it completely, and they're doing all fundraising, and I don't know what the answer is. But they did the world a favor and 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 said, yes, we'll run Worlds when apparently nobody else wanted to. Because Worlds isn't a moneymaker for anybody. Pro Worlds and Worlds, that can be a moneymaker for your club. Pro Worlds is not. You just you fundraise a ton of money. You give a ton of money, ton a ton of money out. Um, does Emporia have some issues? Of course, spectators were an issue because Emporia, Kansas, isn't near anything. You're two and a half. Or, I'm sorry, two and a half. You're an hour and a half to two hours from everything. And 
they have an okay amount of hotel rooms. They've got some camping, Airbnbs, things like that. But um, I, I heard some of the complaints were that there weren't enough spectators on all the days, except for the final day. The final day looked like it was pretty solid. I think a couple thousand is what I saw. 2,000? 1,800? 2,200? Probably somewhere around there. I, I don't know. I don't know what else we can do. Um, I was thinking hard about this. Because people were comparing it to Utah Worlds with the big stands and the stadium. And I, I liked what DD did. They put that huge board out on 18, which I thought looked great. They could People were literally watching the broadcast while we were playing it. So we went to it, and it was a, you know, a good 20 seconds to 30 seconds behind because you doubled the delay based on what they're watching to what we're watching. It, I thought they did a phenomenal job. They're great hosts. Doug Bjorkis can run an event like none other. He is probably one of the premier event guys in the entire sport. And and Jackie, who is the technical TD, phenomenal. I think she's following in Doug's footsteps. I'm excited that we get to go to DDO every year. Honestly, if I could usually pick one course to go, one event to go to every year, it's DDO. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the people that are there, the AMs that are there, the pros that are there. Um, I would have liked to go to Worlds this year just because I do like the Emporia area. So anyway, that's my little rant. Um, the only other thing complaint I've been seeing online is from mostly stupid people about uh, the OB lines on the island hole. Why do we have OB lines when there's water, natural OB and this and that? Just Just realize that when you hear someone say that, they're stupid. Because not only does that water go up and down depending on the temperature and whether or not there's been rain, so to keep oh to, to paint a line is a consistent line. But go back a few years, and it might have been Drew Gibson, and I know we've seen that with maybe the FPO. There are certain spots on that island that are very rocky. And if the water's at the right place, you see a disc land on the rocks that looks completely dry, but you can look underneath of it and there's water underneath the rocks. And then you have a very difficult group decision about how close is that OB? Are you OB? Aren't you OB? I don't know. There's a rock here. There's some grass there. My disc kind of goes out to here and the water line is here. The OB lines take all of that away on that island. And so I think every island should have OB and I think most of them do these days. So I think there's a lot of newer people that aren't used to that don't watch as much golf as some of us you know, all our smashies are smart. We know that. So if you if you see somebody make that complaint about the OB lines on the island, just know, take pity on them. Understand that they don't know what you know. And what we all know is that that's the right way to do it. Um, the one thing I didn't worry about this weekend at all was the way this event was going to be run and handled and marked the courses uh, I think the PDGA is starting to knock it out of the park now. They've got a bunch of full-time people that are showing up much better than it has been in years past. Um, there's the talk of why is Worlds Tuesday to Saturday? When maybe we could get more spectators if it was Wednesday to Sunday. And I think that's a valid, com- we'll say discussion point. I wouldn't even call it a complaint. A valid discussion point these days. But that's only these days. A lot of people have to remember that Tuesday to 
Saturday made a lot more sense up to two to three years ago when the PDGA didn't have the resources that they had. In order to get players to show up, in order to get volunteers to show up, in order to get the few spectators that we used to have show up, having that Sunday to travel meant that you didn't have to take Monday off of work. So instead, you could take off one full week from Monday to Sunday, technically, of work, depending on what you're doing. You show up on whenever you can the weekend before Worlds. You get a couple days of practice. You play through the week. You leave Sunday morning, catch a flight. You drive your six to eight hours wherever you're going. That's why I believe that's why we have the tradition of Tuesday through Saturday. Because none of us were full-time touring pros. A lot of us had jobs on Monday that we didn't want to take another day off for. Spectators had a chance. Now, that's different these days. We have full-time PDGA people, which which means we have less. Remember, PDGA is a volunteer organization, so we didn't, they didn't have, gosh, I remember when the PDGA had like four full-time employees. I don't even know how many they have now. So we got to see that evolution. And now, I think there's a very good, in fact, it might even be next year that I think Fish had said that it looks like the dates for Worlds and USDGC are all Wednesday through Sunday. So I think maybe now is the right time that we start making that transition for spectators. It doesn't matter for players. Players could play Sunday to Thursday. Who cares? Honestly, like, they don't, nobody cares. But if we want to start bringing in more spectators, Having that Saturday, Sunday logistically might be the right answer. And it might not be. I loved it when, even as a spectator, I could leave on Sunday and make it home. So having World's final day on a Sunday, because we're not always going to have Labor Day. It's World's moves around every year. It's not always Labor Day weekend. Having that extra day of travel to me is really awesome. I like Tuesday to Saturday personally. But I think a lot of people are going to be looking at the Saturday-Sunday. There's advantages to that. Um, but knowing that you're not getting done with that Sunday until 6 o'clock at night, you can't, I mean, you're definitely not getting out. If, if you're flying, you're not leaving. If you've got more than a six-hour drive, you're probably not getting to where you, where you want to be that night. Maybe you will if you're, you know, if you're, if you're a hardcore driver. But next year, it's in Vermont. So if, unless you live in the surrounding four states, good luck. You're not. You're going to have to take that Monday off. So we'll see how it does for spectators. I, I'm curious to see what the PDGA does. I'm curious to see what happens on a Wednesday to Sunday. You know, where where are field games? Gonna, when are field games going to be held? All this other stuff because we've had these all set in stone for twenty plus years. So I I think change is good. Progress is good. And when it comes to the PDGA and the players, we no longer have to worry about players, quote unquote, making it home in time. You know, there, we have very few working players, people, people who are uh, on tour and still have a full time job. You know, there's obviously a handful of them. You know, we saw this weekend Logan Harpool, who had a pretty good weekend. He's a full time employee, he's got a job. You know, we, we, we see. Players like that. And I think James Proctor still has a full-time job. Um, Steve Rico clearly has a disc golf and a concrete job. We have players that do that, but a majority of our 
players now are strictly touring. They make their their living from disc golf. So we don't need to worry about players. We don't need to worry about uh, PDGA people anymore because they're not volunteers. I, mean, I think there might be still some, but most of them are paid employees that show up these days. Um, you may have to worry. I don't know if it's, you know, most of your volunteers are going to be local. You know, you're not getting volunteers in from around the country, you know, except for maybe disc golf guys like Terry or like sometimes your son King for Amworld to come in and, and run a course or uh, uh, Mike Solt, that type of that type of person. I don't know. TJ Lewisdale says he likes turtles. I like turtles, too. Um, I haven't honestly. I haven't looked at the board. I've gone off on this very long-winded discussion with myself, as a lot of my discussions go. Um, usually, I just don't put a microphone in front of myself when I talk to myself. So, sorry if uh, if there's been things on the board that I haven't really gone over. One of the talking points we saw this weekend, as I kind of scroll up, I see Jay Tyrus talk about it. Paul McBeth's new disc. The Athena, six letters, six world championships. He had the Zeus, four letters, four world championships. That guy just knows how to market. I want to see what's the prediction for a seven-letter one. Because you've got to assume he's going to come out with another disc soon. Not soon, but whatever. Is he going to go with a six? If it's soon, if it's, we'll say in the next six months, another disc comes out, which I don't think we're going to see one because we have the Athena now, and they're probably not going to stack discs like that. But if it's too far before Worlds, then I think you're going to see another six-letter name. But if it's closer to Worlds, does he do another? Does he push that envelope again? Does he push that button for a seven-letter disc name trying to win his seventh world championship or does he wait till he wins a seventh and then release the seven letter name i don't know the i don't know the answer don't know the answer we can ask paul sometime next time we have him on the show we'll ask him Uh, i'm gonna go through and read some of the comments on the board yes terry's not here he's on his way to sweden if you missed the beginning of the show he's got he was uh contracted to do some work over there at some events and as terry is wont to do he flies. He flies away to all over the world because he's the disc golf guy. Um, I thought Paul said something interesting during his after-show conversation with Terry and Nate about his strategy. He talked about taking... Again, I wish I had Paul here. I'd ask him this question. Um, taking some of Aaron's shots, basically getting on the tee and doing what Aaron would have done. And I have to wonder, I don't know, is that supposed to be an intimidation factor? Is that just you feel that Aaron had a better game plan than you, and so you are now copying him with his shots? Because we, we know Brian pointed out a very thing. Aaron had a very quote-unquote, simple game plan. Single angle shots. Throw the forehand power, 
throw the backhand power. Very rarely do you need a disc to flip up and fly straight or, um, or, or flex if you're Aaron Gossage. You just power whatever forehand or backhand that you need. But Paul said something to the lines of, I, I took his shot in front of him. And if I'm Aaron Gossage, and I, I don't know if I know that, unless behind the scenes they're chatting and Paul kind of drops a little like, oh, hey, I, I took the same shot you do, or something along those lines, but I can't see Paul doing that. Um, so I don't know if that's just a one of those internalized intimidation things like, you know, inside, inside your head, you're psyching yourself up. Like I did the same shot he did in front of him that he normally does. I, if Paul Macbeth changes up his game plan at worlds in no world, do I think it's because of anybody else other than Paul in no world? Do I think he did that to intimidate Aaron or to get into Aaron's head or anything like that? Even if Paul thinks he did. And even if whatever, the one thing I love about Paul Macbeth is that he plays, the, you know, he plays against himself. He plays against the course. He finds things to drive him. You know, we always make the joke and people talk, you know, uh, I play better when I play with better people. And then Terry's always come back as, well, who Ricky and Paul play better with? And it's like, they don't have to. That's why they're the best. They have that extra gear that they find different motivations. You know, if I get on a card with someone that's, 30 or 40 ratings points better than me. I try to beat that person. I try to compete to them. We've all had these instances where we get on the course and we play to, we'll say play to the level of our opponents. If everybody's having shooting poorly, sometimes it drags you down. These guys don't really do that because they don't care. They don't care what those other players are shooting. They, they are there to, to do something that's, Hopefully never been done. They're always shooting, trying to shoot course records. They're always attacking unless you get down to the final hole or two and you don't need to, you know, unless, unless the smart play is the right play. They don't need that extra drive because they find it somewhere inside. So to think that Paul was some trying, even if he thought he was intimidating Aaron or taking his shots, it doesn't make any sense to me. Now, if that's what Paul thinks he was doing, awesome. Good for him. He won. He knows what the hell he's doing. But again, if I'm Aaron Gossage, I look at that and go like, oh, cool. Paul threw a forehand like I did. Yeah. He must like that shot. At no point am I Aaron Gossage thinking like, oh, Paul took my shot. So funny, funny things that Paul say. Funny things. Uh, Let's go through some more comments here. I'm going to scroll down to the bottom. Uh, Someone's saying the Athena is a little bit more like a T-bird. I don't know. I haven't thrown one. Those test flights, I'd love some. If anyone wants to send me some, I'm, you know, find my address. Reach out to me. I, I can give you my address if you want to send me some free ones. <laughs> I'll tell you what they fly like. I'll go out and throw them. You know, um, I'm excited though because Paul is, you know, not that Paul needs any different discs. That guy, again, you give you give that guy five paper plates and he's going to beat most players. Um. Robert Purden says, I think it's supposed to be Climo talk instead of climb. That's probably autocomplete there, Robert. <laughs> Climo versus climb. I'm not going to lie. I didn't exactly hear what Paul said about Climo. 
I think he said something along along the lines of he wishes he was more involved or something along those lines. It was during that that championship interview, and I kind of tuned out. I was doing something else, preparing for the after show, all this other stuff. So I didn't exactly hear. He said that he wanted Climo to be more present. Yeah, I've heard I've heard varying things about Climo. I've heard that he he has some issues that he's a little self conscious about. That maybe he doesn't want to be involved right now. That he's working on other things, so to speak, personal things that he needs to take care of. I don't know if he wants to be involved because we all know if Climo really wanted to be involved, he's got to make a single phone call. Anyone's will, anyone would be happy to have Ken Climo on the on the broadcast or podcast or show or sideline reporter or anything. You know, I think what Emac did. With Terry on one of those rounds, I think Climo could be great at that. Climo is a student not only of the game, but of the game of golf in general, the, the technique, the style. He can see a lot of things. He's a very smart guy when it comes to um, the sport. I think he could be advantageous. So whether or not he knows it, the situation is out there for him. He, he can make the calls. And maybe people have made the calls. And he's not ready. Um, I would I would love to see Clamo more involved because he was I don't I don't want to say my hero by any means. That's not the case. Um, he was the guy that we saw growing up. Like oh my god! I mean, from my late teens to my mid twenties, he was the man in disc golf. He was unbeatable. You know, he was basically. He, and I'm not talking titles or goats here, but he was better than Paul McBeth because he was winning everyone. You know, when it came to Worlds, Climo was going to win. Now, Paul's taking first or second. That's, I'm not comparing the two of them. I'm looking at it from my perspective when I was young and just said, yeah, it was inevitable that Climo was going to win. He found a way, and it was usually by a few strokes. You know, It usually wasn't close. There were a few years, but... You know, until until uh, the wrestler broke that in, you know, was it uh, 99? Yeah, in 99. I think, it, yeah, because it was 1999 and Russell's PDGA number was like 9999, all that stuff. So anyway, so Climo was the man for many years for us. But. If he wants to be involved, he knows where to call. He he knows how to get a hold of people. There's my guess is that there's something stopping him. And I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's money. I don't know if it's something personal. I don't know if it's whatever. But uh I, I think that Climo is out there. So uh I Heart Disc Golf says if Innova doesn't pay Kenny, that is kind of sad. I, I don't know the situation with Innova and and Kenny. I've heard lots of rumors. I've heard I've heard things like you know Innova Innova bought out the rights to his name on discs so they don't have to pay him for KC stuff. I've heard that he still gets paid for KC stuff. I think I remember back in the day <laughs> this goes to show how far we've moved. I think I heard Barry made like a quarter on every beast or something. A single quarter on every beast that was sold. And now we have players making, you know, 
$5 a disc on tour series discs or, you know, uh, a, you know, you, you might get a buck or two bucks or three bucks for signature. Like if you win worlds, Innova makes the Ricky Wysocki destroyer or whatever it was. And, and he made it a buck or two or three on every one of those discs sold. And that was awesome because that's a stock stamp then. Like you're making money, not just on your tour series, but on a stock stamp disc. And those get sold all the time. You know, tour series are limited to an X amount usually. So I don't know what Kenny's deal is with Innova. I would hope that he's still involved somehow. I would hope that he's still making some residuals on it, but I don't know. Honestly, that's that's a private business deal with those guys. Uh, Jay Tyre says, don't let your phone ring when Kenny's about to make a putt. He'll go tiger on you. Well, yeah, I mean, if you're about to make a putt, you shouldn't have your phone on. Spock Heiser says, Johnny, I'd like to see more post-round interviews with unfilmed players in the clubhouse with hot rounds. Spock Heiser, I agree with you. Uh, in fact, I brought that up with people for USCGC. We might see that. Um, it depends what the situation is. We saw that last year at USCGC that I want an interview station where as each card comes off, you grab one player and they sit down and they have a five minute conversation with somebody. Your typical sports talk stuff. Hey, how'd the round go? Uh, Maybe you're looking at their scorecard like, oh, look on hole seven. They hit a 60 foot putt. Tell me about hole seven and what exactly happened. Get a couple sound bites from them. Move them on, you know, usher them out. The next card comes in. You grab somebody, whether it's the hot score whether it's the, the the hot player that shot poorly, you know, if you're on the fifth card and Kelvin Heinberg shoots a two under and he should and you know, everyone's expecting him to shoot an eight under, grab Kelvin, ask him what happened out there. I want to see more of those as well. And then have kind of like a almost like we did, and we'll talk about it this as well as the featured uh old broadcast. Kind of have that for interviews where you just have interviews that come in constantly and someone's performing them. And I don't know who that is. I don't know if that's a PDGA person that would do that. DGPT or DGN hire somebody. Last year, Terry did it. Um, I don't know if that's what Terry wants to do. I know he likes to be on the course. And I don't know what he's going to be doing for USCGC. I don't think anyone really has these jobs nailed down 100% yet. Um, I've heard talks about who's doing some things, but not for sure. So that's something I would like to see as well, is, is like an interview station for players. Again, one player a card, say, come in, five-minute interview, get them out, get the next player in. Pretty simple, I think. Uh, and even if you don't play them live, you can bank them, save them for later, because you never know who's going to shoot a poor round one, and then by round four, they're on the second card competing for whatever. So, uh, Real quick, let's talk about the Featured Holes broadcast. I don't know if any of you guys got a chance to watch it. It was a DGN exclusive uh, it didn't work out the first day because I know I think we talked about the first day. They had some issues with the cameras coming in, but by Wednesday it was up and running. We had a bunch of our guys out there doing some really awesome stuff. They were just parked at like two or three holes, two holes, I think here and just showing you shots after shots. We used some of that stuff in our, in the feature broadcast, the shop or the, the live broadcast, so to speak, when people would have a great hole 16, you know, we saw, uh, was it? Someone got an ace on 16, and I forget who it was. I think Austin Turner slammed chains. Um, we saw a couple people park it. We saw a couple people hit the koozie. 
I forget who got the ace, but someone got an ace on 16. And we were able to see that in the broadcast because we had the static camera out there. So kudos to that. Um, I hope we see more of that. I think if it goes well, we might see a lot of that next year. We're talking like maybe almost most of the elite series is my guess is what's going to happen. Cause the way things traditionally work with DGN is that we try something. If it works and we love it, they try to get it to be a permanent thing. And Mo loved it. He he was saying, and again, this is not, there's nothing new under the sun. This is not anything new. Smashbox did this way back when at the DDO, or technically the GBO, where we had a featured whole broadcast, but we just ran it between rounds where we showed the island hole on hole 16 with a static camera for, you know, like an hour. And then we went between rounds like that. But this is something we've never been able to do that. And then they did it last year at USDGC where now we can bring it into the current fold. Awesome. Excited. Looking forward to a lot of that. Hopefully we'll get that. Keep going. Keep evolving. So. Zach P says he didn't watch any of it. That's okay. I, I kind of kept it on when I was at work. I cause all week at Worlds, I worked my nine to five job in the morning from eight thirty ish till twelve thirty to one. Then I drove home, sat down in this chair right here, and pushed the keys, pushed the buttons, and then did that for four hours. And when I was at work, I had the I had the feature hole broadcast up on one screen or one tab, and then the the actual broadcast on another. It was awesome. Because when there was a commercial, don't tell anybody, but I tuned out of the broadcast and I went to the featured whole broadcast so I didn't have to watch the commercials. I still listen to the commercials because I didn't bother muting and unmuting. So, um, Did Ezra ace the same hole as Johnny? No, no. I have two different courses, I believe. Uh, Ezra's hole 12 ace was the big monster 450-foot turnover shot. I think Johnny's was on hole 12 at Jones. So I believe that was two different courses. So I would say I'm 95% sure on that. Uh, Gavin got the ace on 16. Okay, cool. That's great. Um, let's. What else do we have to talk about? Obviously, Worlds featured broadcasts. We got that under control. Um Macbeth's dominance, that guy. Is it just worlds? Like that I don't, Major Macbeth. I don't understand. I don't know. I don't know. I really don't. That guy can just, again, he just manages. He's just such a great player. And a great guy, too. Gossage made a, if you're not following Aaron Gossage on Instagram, go for it. Aaron made a great post about how Honored he was. Could he, how old do you feel when Aaron Gossage, who's in his, he just graduated college, so he's got to be in his early 20s, 22, 23, literally says, I grew up dreaming about being on the lead card with Paul Macbeth. Like, I grew up like that. That makes me feel so old. And I know Macbeth is in his 30s, or it's like 30 or 31. Sounds about right, 31. But just to think like, 
you're 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 beating these people and they looked up to you when they were teenagers and you're still top of the game like these these kids can't catch you these kids can't catch you yeah macbeth is 31 uh zach pieces how many viewers did the extra whole stream get honestly i didn't look i don't think it was more than a couple hundred maybe a thousand um I did hear that the final day, the final round, I think amongst the DGN and YouTube crowd, I think they said 51,000, maybe 51,500 viewers to that broadcast, which if it was 51,500, I think that's a record. I think that's bigger than last year's, which I think just hit just over 50K or something. Who knew? And to put it in comparison, I think Mo Mo posted this on Twitter. Um, the Live Golf, you know, the big new expensive golf, uh, they stream on YouTube as well. They had sixty thousand viewers. We had fifty thousand. And granted, theirs isn't playoff. Theirs is just kind of a standard week broadcast. Ours is our World Championships, but those are some pretty good numbers. Not gonna lie. Uh, there was some talk about the trophy, the trophies, the different trophies, the first place trophy versus the second place trophy. The second place trophy looked like a glass, kind of a generic glass circle with a, with a stand, a good mantelpiece versus the first place trophy, which was like, it looked like some sort of acrylic, like almost like a plaque with a 3D basket coming out of it and, a, and a, a, like a metal disc with some etched glass or something over it. Um. A lot of people didn't like the trophy, first place trophy. And um, I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> I mean, it's it's so subjective. And I, I, think, I know a lot of people are screaming right now, no, it's it was an objectively bad trophy. I don't know. I, I, I don't really care too much about trophies. I think it was an okay trophy. I'll tell you what. Um, if if you think it's a bad trophy, then be glad that Paul Macbeth won because he's got so many trophies that that is one that he can probably stick behind all the other ones if he doesn't like it. Um, if someone like Tanner or Gossage won that and there was their, that was their first trophy, I guarantee you they would have loved it. They would it would be out front. It would probably be glued to their uh, front windshield so they could look at it when they drove all across the country. And they would love it, regardless of how it looked. So that's how I kind of have I, I think about it. The guys who don't care about their trophies much anymore and just want the titles, like Macbeth and Wysocki. I don't know if the trophies matter. But eh, whatever. <laughs> Races Terry probably ended up with Paul's trophy. I don't think so, not this time. Although I'm fairly certain Terry does have a world championship, not a first place, but a world championship trophy, a second or third somewhere. Fairly certain. I know he's got a USDGC trophy, second place one. Yeah. I don't know. He might have a second place world's trophy too. It, it would if you know a few people and you know that they're not interested in the trophies, 
you might be able to get them off of them, especially if you're around them all the time and you're well-liked like Terry Miller. Excuse me while I drink. Hopefully no one really heard that. Um, Ray Zerhausen says, who knew live could be so hard to do? Uh, what is that in refer? Oh, Jomez. Oh, Jomez delayed the release of their final round at 10 p.m. Um, so they could do do the live stuff. Yeah. I'm, I'm not here to crap on Jomez. Th- those guys are phenomenal. In general, they're, they're well, they're, they're, they're nice guys. They're well liked. Um, and th- they've never come out and said anything like, well, you know, we could do live better or anything like that. They know better. They know how difficult it is. Um, just like I would never say I could come out and do post-production better than them because I couldn't, you know, I, I think this is where I get myself in trouble in general. I think live is harder to do than post-production. I've done both. Post-production is a, um, an assembly line. We'll say where everybody, everybody has a job and that job is kind of cookie cutter. You know what you're doing. You know, the, the cards from the camera get pulled over to Mike. Mike does, or somebody, we'll say, uh, you know, follow flight. Uh, you, you put together a quick A-B cut where you cut the cameras. You throw in some of the, the reactions. They're all time synced. That's not too difficult. You, you cut it to a certain length and you hand it off to the next guy who's already doing graphics. They lay the graphics over. You know, you, you, you find tweak and edit some things. Make sure all your sound effects and everything are going for your transitions, you drop in commercials, you you push it through to the commentators, they watch it, record commentary, that gets laid over and it gets shoved out the door. Like it's very cookie cutter. Um and it can all be done after the fact. So if you if your cameraman misses a shot, a catch cam, you don't have to take the catch cam. Live is obviously a little bit different in that we don't have the 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 quality of video that they do. And it's a little bit more free flowing at every given minute. You know, we, we, we know that we're going to go to the, you know, we don't know if we're going to go to the second card. They don't have to worry about that. It's one card. It's all time synced. They, they, they push it out and they do a phenomenal job at that. And they have some awesome graphics. Now they did their final round live next day at the Granada. And someone said it was about 40% full. So that's a pretty good turnout. Cause I think that probably holds, couple thousand people, 3,000 people. I don't know. I don't know how many were there. Plus, they did it online. And it sounded atrocious because they used their live, which to me makes sense. You want to hear the audience. You want to hear the whole point of it doing it live was to get that reaction, to get the laughs from the crowd, to be able to see Big Sexy, um, to get all of that. The problem is it's more difficult. You know, there's a lot of things you need to deal with with live that you don't aren't used to dealing with in post. And they've done live shows before. They did Shomaz live for a couple years. I think now they're recording them and putting them out there, which is their strength. But they did. I think that I didn't hear anything bad about the Shomaz stuff. I don't know if I really watched much of it when it was live. But it's tough because it did sound like Sexton sounded, and I peeked in on the when I heard this because um, I wanted to see how bad it was. 
Sexton sounded pretty good. Jerem sounded like he was like five feet away from Sexton, and Yuli sounded like he was on the moon. Like it just it sounded like all his audio came from the internal speakers. And I don't know why. I, there was some clearly technical hiccup that they have. So when you hear people say, obviously DGN for the longest time got tore apart. You know, people hated them. They hated us. And everyone was like, oh, Jomez, you know, get Jomez a whack at live. They could do so much better. They could do so much better. Jomez wasn't saying that because they know better. Everyone thought that because Jomez had such a lock on post-production, they did it so well that they could easily step into a live production and just, it would be great. Well, next time you see somebody, point him to that, point him to that to tell him how hard live is. Um, I don't know what the problem is, uh, what happened with Jomez. Without being there and seeing the setup, I don't know if they used the house board at the Granada, because I've used that board. In fact, for the players Q&A two or three years ago, um, I went in there and I wanted, we did the, we did the, uh, uh, the live stream and I wanted to take the feed from the board that was getting all the mics, pump it into my board, a, a little Behringer mixer and push that out into my computer live. So everything would be mixed in the board. And then it would come out, go, it should be a very simple thing to do if you, if you know your board. And they had this huge board. It was probably five feet, and it was relatively new. They had, I think, gotten it within like a, a year. And I mean, a thousand buttons on this damn thing. And I didn't, I didn't know it because there was a computer running with it, and they had all these presets. I didn't know their board. I'm used to running these tiny little Behringers with little sliders at the time. And so I asked someone at the Granada, I was like, hey, how do I get a, a just a clean out? I just want to plug into an out and just get a copy of that. And literally no one could tell me in that entire organization at the Granada. They're like, we don't know. We think it's like this, but that didn't work. And there's like one guy who kind of knows this board inside and out, but he's not around right now. And we just have a few presets that we use for certain things. Sorry, we can't help you. I talked to four people at the Granada that night, including, I think, the owner. And none of them could answer like what should be a pretty simple question on how to get a, a an auxiliary out via XLR into my <laughs> mixing board, um, I, which I have done before uh, for other at other establishments. But this board was like really, really kind of new. It had all these lights and lit up. I didn't know. And I didn't want to mess with it. I didn't want to like say, hey, let me move, move over. Let me play with your toys and I'll just jump on your computer and start changing things. So we ended up, I think, coming straight from the cameras was our audio for the Q&A at that year. Um, I think the, 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 the board ran the speaker audio, and then we grabbed a, a clean from the cameras or something like that for, for the live broadcast, for the live Q&A. But so working with the Granada crew, not always the easiest. And that could be different. That was years ago. I don't know what happened to Jomez. I don't know. Because in theory, if each person is on their own track you probably could have taken Yuli's feed and run it through some crazy d reverb stuff and maybe cleaned it up a little bit maybe they already did that maybe it was so bad before and this is the better version of it i don't know i had nothing to do with it i I do know that if we want to look at it from a business perspective it's not good for their final round at live to sound like it does like this is the big one. This is your, this is your super bowl. You know, this is the one where you're going to pull in 
half a million, a million views. You know, last year's got a million views. I think the year before that, it got like 5 million because as you know, I remember talking about it, it kind of hit the Google algorithm lottery where it got, it started getting pushed to people. And so a lot of people watched it and their numbers skyrocketed that year. Great. And last year was the, was the holy shot. So it had a ton of views. I don't know what this year's is going to get because if the audio is that bad, no one's going to want to sit through that. And, and and the audio is kind of bad. Now I think what they could do maybe is re-record the commentary, sit those three guys down for a new version of it, or they could be working on cleaning up the audio they have right now, if possible. Um, but I, I will say that I think from a business perspective, strictly that this isn't that, that it's not great. It's not going to bust Jomez or anything dumb like that. It's just a bad timing. Like if this happened on round three or the, the final round of GMC or, or Des Moines, it sucks. You live with it. Your final round of worlds, like that's tough. That That's a tough pill to swallow. Um, and hopefully, you know, hopefully they learned. I mean, clearly, they 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 probably know what the problem is, and they'll fix it for next time if they do it again. Because those guys are smart, and and they know. So, someone says the audio for y- Yuli was better in the back nine. Okay, I didn't check the back nine. I'm not gonna lie. I I popped in on the on the early part, and it was super echoey. So hopefully, if it got if it got that much better, um, great. I'll have to go and listen to it. Sorry about that. I just had a little coughing fit there. <clears throat> yeah. Um, Jomas added a live drone shot, so they put in quotes, for a few of the drives off the tee to this production. They see how good it looks on DGN. Did they? I, I, I didn't know that, Ray. Um, that's really interesting. I wonder if I wonder if they either got them from DGN crew or if they had their own drone out there. Cause I'm not gonna lie, if I'm if I'm DGN, and I'm not, by the way, I'm a contractor with Smashbox TV. I look at the drone as a exclusive to DGN kind of the the cool thing that only you can get with us. And if I were DGN, I would maybe think about putting the kibosh on that from a business perspective. It's one of the cool exclusives you can get on DGN. Now, if DGN is giving them um, footage from their drone, that's fine. And let them do what they want to do. I don't necessarily know if I'd want two drones flying around. Not only is it noisy, We've we've heard complaints from players at one drone at times where it's like, hey, you need to, you know, hey, we need to back off, fly higher. Um, you're maybe just a little too close, depending on if it's over water. Sometimes the audio can carry a little bit with, you know, how things are over ponds and waters and things like that. So we, we've heard people, you know, on the comms be like, hey, can you back the drone off a little bit? I'm starting to hear it and we don't want to hear it. Usually they fly up pretty high. They've got a nice zoom on their lens. I don't know. But if, if they're starting to put drone shots in, that's great. You know, it, it is, assuming that works, that's pretty cool. Because um, there, there are some really cool angles that you can get on the drone shots. 
So, um, they I did see something where they said they showed where the player is on each hole. Is something live should pick up? That's really tough to do on the fly, Matt. Um, because I believe they showed like more or less what's a a graphic, so to speak, of the hole with kind of like a little pointer saying this is where Paul is, this is where Aaron is. That is very difficult to do on the fly because you need you would need someone to have a have a map, be able to pinpoint where that player is, create a graphic, which wouldn't be too tough because you already have you have them you'd have to have the whole map up in Photoshop and then quickly drop a probably a pre-made thing with a name on it and maybe a distance and then save it, bring it into our system, upload it and show it all in the time it takes them to walk to their shot. Cause after they walk to their shot, that's kind of useless. So it's really easy to do in post-production because there's no time limit. You know, for us, it, it would almost have to be done within that. That's like a four minute process. You have to have someone that does that and then gets it out within four minutes before they get to their shot. So you can show them like, Oh, Hey, Paul's up first. And you show an overhead shot. This is where the HR, here's the basket. He's going to have to, you know, looks like he's going to have to take a hyzer here, something dumb. And it works really well for um, open courses. Wooded courses, just like we find with the drone, not so great. GMC, we're probably going to only use the drone a third of the time because most of that course is under tree cover. Maple Hill. You know, we'll use it when they get to around 10, 1, 1 and 2, what, 10, 11, 12-ish, and then 17, 18 if we're lucky. So, I mean, those are cool things. But it's very difficult to do in live because of the time intensity of it. So getting that to somebody. Um, there, there could, I have seen some different plugins that let you plug Photoshop into our switcher. So you wouldn't have to necessarily export it. Instead, you could literally point an input into their Photoshop. So once they once they save it, we could take literally like their Photoshop screen live and you would just see an image and not like the whole Photoshop thing. We've never tried it. I've never tried it. I've heard of it. I don't know how well it would work, but it could be kind of cool. I'd love to try it. I don't know how that would work. So. Uh, Matt says, seeing how far Paul back was from Aaron on 17 was more than he realized. Yeah, Paul hit way early and Gossage had a crush. Um, I might even have Gossage's drive. Yeah. So here's, here's Aaron Gossage's drive on, on 17. He got all of it. Like Paul is easily 150 back from that. That that was an amazing drive at a huge pressure pack situation, knowing that you can that you have to get a stroke because you just watched Paul Macbeth mess up. That that the pressure is on you because there were a lot of times in both divisions I watched the door get opened for a player and them not be able to walk through that door. Aaron Gossage did that right there. Now. 
he tripped down the rug when he got in the door because <laughs> his approach sucked and he ended up parring the hole. But he did walk through the door. So <laughs> uh, there's that. The ground level angle is such an old hat, says Spock Heiser. Um, I know we're going to have to find new. Um, we're, we're just going to follow shots with drones. You know how they circle around them in like the double G commercial and some of the other ones. That's that's the new thing that EGN is going to do. If we hit a couple discs with our drone, who cares? Right. <laughs> uh, Carney Schill says we're using OBS studio, right? No, we're using it's funny. We're using vMix, which is like one like OBS is your consumer free lots of plugins things like that uh vmix is kind of like your prosumer where a lot of small like your your college football small schools your high school productions you, you know your your niche sports like us use vmix and then when you get into more professional things they start going to like the grass valley switchers the ross um Maybe they use black magic, but that's kind of looked at as even more prosumer than anything else. The big switchboards that, you know, you see on the Emmys or the Oscars or things like that. That's those are all Ross and Grass Valley and huge names that, you know, are you're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars for that equipment as opposed to the few grand that uh, our software costs. So um did they kick Elaine out? Nobody kicked Elaine out of anywhere. Um, the interview was always planned for Charlie and Val. You can only have so many people do an interview, you know, with the winner. And Elaine isn't known for her interviewing. She never has been. It's not her strength. It's not anything. I don't believe it had anything to do with, you know, what happened earlier in the season. I just think it just logistically worked out that way. Just like for the MPO, Ian didn't get kicked out. Brian didn't get kicked out. Terry is the interviewer. He not only has the best relationship probably with most of these players, although you could argue Earhart, who's been on tour, could qualify as that. And Doss, who has been in the position, three world championships. So I think the DGN just felt that those two were the right situation to interview Paul. Um, Because as, you know, as good as Ian is behind the mic for the play-by-play, He's not an interviewer. That's not his strength. And I, I wouldn't want to put him in that position to, especially in, in that spotlight. You know, I, I feel like I can throw Terry under, you know, a 10,000 watt light bulb and he'll shine. <laughs> you know, Ian, I don't necessarily have that confidence with when it comes to that situation, when it comes to interviewing. You know, Ian's good at play by play. That's what that's, you know, it comes from talking about post production. So. But no, Elaine did not get kicked out. Someone says, the Athena is a more stable Undertaker. Ooh, that might be too overstable for me. Undertaker is like perfect stability for me if I want to get about a 350 to 400 foot shot out because I can't can't really flip it unless there's a little headwind. Um, I'm also getting older and slower these days. So I can't can't really flex it, uh, an Undertaker. So if Athena is more stable than an Undertaker, that's not going to be good for me. That might be a good that might be a good solid headwind disc then that I know is not even going to flip up. Give me a good three twenty five to three fifty under my belt. Um, Brian is incredible. It says here, yeah, 
I agree. I think he's a natural in the field, or not in the field, in, in the in the booth. I think he knows when to talk. He's eloquent, and he's precise. And he gets really good nuggets from players who he goes out beforehand and talks to, or he knows them. Or and I think Brian is really good in in the booth, and I hope I hope that's a position that he enjoys and wants to stay there. Because we know Brian can do a couple different things. Um, there's encore stuff. There's you know not even media stuff. I mean, he could DGN could pay him to start up his podcast again, and maybe not want him. I don't know. I hope he stays in the booth because I think he's good there. What else do we have in the chat board? <laughs> uh, Arthur says, JV, I would love to watch players at the bar after the tourney. Um, then you need to go to the bar after the tournament. <laughs> You're not going to see many of them. Most of our top guys are not doing that. It's not like the old days when Terry and I toured and it was like night two or three of worlds and we're calling up Steve Rico at 9.30 at night and saying, dude, where are you going out tonight drinking? And he asks us, well, where do you think you should go? And we find the best spot to go out and drink and dance and debauchery. It doesn't ha- that, that just doesn't happen anymore. At best, you're going to see in like a place like Emporia, maybe a couple players at the Bourbon Cowboy playing, shooting some pool. Your Anthony Barella, um, so maybe some of your younger guys. So maybe Simon shows up. It's for better, probably a quieter scene now on the pro scene than it was in the past. And even back in the day, it wasn't hugely wild to go out. We were just some of the more fun players. (laughs) We knew who the fun players were. You're not asking Jay Redding to go out to the club with you, um, but you are asking Steve Rico. Jay will ask you how the club was the next morning and give you a hard time. Um, Stevie just with Stevie and his crew. So what else do we have here on our board? Steve, speaking of Steve Rico, he did win his 150th event. I think it came down to the final hole, which he parked and somebody else didn't. And so he got, I, I believe that's the story I read. Uh, and he won his 150th PDGA tournament. So congratulations to Steve Rico. That's a huge um, accomplishment. Not many people are going to get to 150. And especially the quality of wins he has. It's not like he's he's won 150 regional B and C tier events, although he has a bunch of those, I'm sure, under his belt. Um, Stevie won the very first national tour event. Stevie was a national player he was in you know he was close to winning worlds a few times he's got a tiers and national tours and you know those are some he's got some real quality wins under his belt so congratulations stevie rico um a guy who i consider a friend uh races do you like the island hole being the first playoff hole two years in a row Mm, i can see how that how someone wouldn't like that. Um, I don't know where else you start at, uh, at the country club though. I was trying to think, do 16 makes the most sense because it's right there off of 18. So to play 16, 17, 18 again, logistically makes sense. You don't want everyone to have to walk 
all the way over to hole one because it's not a good spectator hole for playoff. Do I wish it wasn't an island hole to start out with? Maybe because we had one last year. Maybe that makes sense. But logistically, it just worked out, I think, for both of these events that the first hole closest to the loop that they wanted to do happened to be an island hole. Now, play pretend 16 and 17 are swapped in position and they started out at what would be hole 17. Um, uh, I don't know. But 16 in this case, I think logistically makes sense from a spectator point of view and from just where it is compared to where they finish. But I could see how someone would say, I I wouldn't want to start with a playoff island hole two years in a row. And uh, the good thing is next year, I believe they're all at GMC and there are no island holes. Are there? Is there an island hole at GMC anywhere? Trying to think. I don't believe there is. Tracing the holes back in my head. Yeah, I don't believe there's any place where you have to make an island at GMC. So we won't get that next year, hopefully. If there's a playoff. Uh, Tim Court said they should have made 16 a Mando off the water. Um, then only Reed Fiskira wins. Because <laughs> he's the guy that skips him off the water. Uh, 15 on Brewster is technically an island, is it? I'm having a, I'm having a hard time thinking of what 15 is. Though all those holes, you know, when you see them, and for some reason I can't Fox Run and Brewster in my head, I can't separate them. I don't know. There's one big course to me. I just imagine holes, and I have no clue what course they're on. That's that. I just have a hard time with that that property. It's a great property. Those both those courses are phenomenal, but they run together in my head. So I, I'm. Yeah, so I I couldn't say. But um, now Davis White brings up a very good point. After ninety holes, should have been a three hole playoff. I can get behind that. I think I made that discussion a couple years ago, where I would not be opposed. Like I I don't mind sudden death. I'm not gonna lie. But and we we're fortunate with these holes, 16, 17, 18, that they didn't really favor a particular righty or lefty. Island holes, the island hole. It doesn't matter which way you throw it, left or right. Forehand, backhand. It doesn't matter. But I could see a scenario where you walk up to a hole, a playoff hole, whether it's a, a hole one, let's say they start at, and it's super lefty friendly. And suddenly Chris Clemens has this huge advantage. Now, hopefully the TD thinks about that ahead of time, blah, 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 find some neutral holes. But I would not mind if you told me we're going into a three-hole playoff. It's going to be the best score after three holes. And if it's tied, then go, then I would say maybe goes into sudden death. I could get behind that. I'm not uh, like gung-ho hardcore on it, but I kind of like the idea just to make sure that it like the quote unquote fairness of the holes um levels out. Uh, but on the other hand, I can understand the situation where like, no dude, these dudes had like ninety holes. 
and get this figured out. Let's get done with it. <laughs> I can understand that as well. Because trust me, I'm saying this from a podcasting perspective. If I'm sitting here behind the board and suddenly you tell me you've got three more holes, I'm groaning. Like, oh, God, kill me. Just end this, somebody. I guarantee you I'm saying that. I guarantee you I'm saying that. And everyone in the control room is saying that. Uh, but I don't mind the idea of a three-hole playoff. Uh, the U.S. Open in golf does a full 18-hole playoff. Yes, they are very unique that way. Uh, it's the next day they do an 18-hole playoff. I hate that idea. With all the passion in my heart, I hate that idea. I don't want to watch a, a, a full 18-hole playoff. Like I don't know why they do it. I think it's dumb. Um, I would not want that for disc golf. Gossage kind of got screwed by the goofy coin toss into the grass. Eh, eh, I mean, you flip a coin, it lands where it lands. It's tails up, he went first. Gossage got screwed because he threw a poor shot. He attacked the hole wrong, it looked like. And I can't, again, I can't verify this. He shouldn't have tried to get fancy and throw it short. He, it, it looked like he didn't want to end up on the back of the island, and he tried to play for either the front to the middle of the island, and it bit him. And once he did that, it was, quote-unquote, easy for Paul to throw a relatively stable hyzer shot out, have it go nice and straight, slide and hit the back of that wall. Easier than trying to place it closer on the island than than whatever. Like, that is just, I I think, and that, again, that that second hand, if Aaron was here, I'd ask him, like, what his, what his attack, plan of attack was on 16. Maybe he just Pulled up tight. Maybe the pressure got to him. Maybe maybe that wasn't his plan at all. Maybe he did want to go for the back of the island and he muffed it. I, I don't know. But from my perspective, you should never come up short on that island. I would rather have you throw it off to the right, off to the left. Go over the, the, the wall on that playoff. Give it a chance to get on that island. He didn't. And that was his mistake. Because I'll tell you what. Paul was not missing the island short. So, yeah, that's my perspective. Uh, JVD, Katrina Allen, lost disc situation. How they spotted her next throw 50 feet further back from where the disc actually was. Your take on that. I didn't see that, Jay. Um, That's tough. Because you go according to where your group agrees and if no one's there to see it because there's not a spotter if it's a blind shot or you you take group decision we've let let me put it this way we saw katrina at ddo a few years ago or gbo get a very very favorable spot on is it hole 13 It's the one with the sidewalk all to the left, and there's a tree that Doss kept saying that the players were aiming towards, and it's basically, as a righty backhand, it's a big hyzer you want to skip down the tree. I remember a couple years ago, Katrina Allen, she threw a poor shot and was in the sidewalk, and every camera view showed her going out of bounds way early, never once cresting in. 
she got the spot 50 to 80 feet up because that's where the group decided. We all saw it. Everybody saw it, saw that she got a good spot. Eh, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose them. Like, it's, you go according to what your group agrees on, and that's just the way it works. You know, it's, that's just how it works. They should use a random dot. Oh, random.org instead of a coin. <laughs> just, um, like just two numbers on random.org? I don't know. And just hope? Coin toss. That's tradition. They never can see it. Excuse me. I'm a little tired. Um, Labor Day. Busted my butt yesterday. Working outside. What does the PDGA need to do to incentivize more local club clubs to put in bids for worlds? It seems like a bad trend for nowhere in the world to want to host the most prestigious event we have. Yeah. Again, what do they need to do? I don't know if they need a full-time world staff, one or two people. That is there just to work local businesses for money, salespeople basically, and maybe a little bit of logistics. I don't know what the right answer is because Worlds requires um, two good courses, minimum of five to seven people to basically run the event. Minimum, like that's bare. That's like bare essentials, I think. Um, 15 or so volunteers, course for spotters and stuff. Then you need the UDISC people to do scoring probably, unless the players are going to, like it's, it's a logistical undertaking like you can't imagine. And then on top of that, you probably lose money. So I don't know what the PDG needs to do in order to get people to want to host worlds. Like what wh- where do you what did what do you gain by hosting worlds? That's the question. Again, am worlds um the local club can make money off of usually like fly marts and players packs. You can kind of break even if not make some cash. The PDGA probably gets some of that. There's probably an agreement for there. I forget exactly how it worked when we ran Amworlds here. Terry took care of all the books. So, um, but I, I don't know what the pro world's incentive is. Other than it's a big fat, it can be a big fat advertisement. I mean, look at DD. Why would they host worlds? Because you get a big fat DD advertisement. You, if you're DD, you get people to show up to Emporia and you have disc stations that have world stamps around the course. You have hopefully now in the, I don't know if DD did this, but 
food carts that you get a cut of or that pay you to be there. You know, you, you can mitigate your losses that way. You know, if, if you're, if you're going to have, hopefully we'll just say, let's just say the baseline now is 1500 spectators. Hopefully it's more than that, but I'm just going to go shoot a little low 1500 spectators. And you can sell $20 discs. I don't know what profit margin is on a disc. Let's just say it's 12 bucks, you know, 12, you can make 12 to 15,000 on spectators for disc sales. Hopefully if everyone buys a disc that's there as, as, or we'll say everyone on average buys one. I'm sure some people like me are going to buy two or three. You're going to get discs signed, things like that. I mean, maybe, maybe you can find a way to, recoup some of your losses, but I honestly don't know. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm totally wrong these days. Maybe you can make money at pro worlds, but in the past that wasn't an option, but we also didn't have spectators. You rarely, you, you would see 150 spectators at a, at a, at a worlds. And usually most of them were players probably if, if there were people showing up. So maybe the, maybe the the numbers have changed now with more spectators, but I don't know. You know, I, I don't know what GMC is going to see next year. Because GMC's again great courses. I think there's enough accommodations nearby, but that's not a. I mean, that's not near anything. I mean, it's Vermont, and it's Smuggler's Notch. Like, I don't know the area very well, but I can't imagine there's a ton of stuff nearby where people are just gonna be able to make a day trip there. Like, oh, I'm just going to run up to smugglers notch for the day. Because I think that was part of what hurt Emporia. Like you're an hour and a half from most cities. And while the, the saying is Emporia knows disc golf, they do like, that's a great city for disc golf. Like they're very open to it and there's a okay amount of players, but it's not like a hotbed of, of players. It's not a huge city where, you know, you've got, 10,000 people that play and they're excited that world's I mean everyone there loves disc golf because it because it brings in the the GBO and they they accommodate it very well just like the 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 Dirty Kanza is a huge biking event that's there it's not like they have 10,000 people that bike in, in Emporia but they they love their biking because it brings people in that's the way disc golf is like DD is a phenomenal company and they they're very good in their uh community and they bring in a lot of people for for GBO when it comes to or DDO now between all the ams and pros so of course Emporia loves disc golf they're, it keeps their their little economy chugging along that doesn't necessarily mean there's a lot of golfers there you know you're an hour and a half from Kansas City i would have liked to see more Kansas City people show up you're an hour and a half from Wichita. I don't know how big Wichita is for disc golf. Kansas City is a pretty big hotbed. So w- what would be nice is if, you know, have it a little bit closer, you know, to to a major metropolitan area. You know, if it was in Kansas City suburbs, we'll say like a, you know, Blue, Blue Valley or, uh, I mean, waterworks or something like that if it's somewhere in kansas city like that maybe you get more people but i don't know like how how do you get people out there on weekdays 
I don't know. Are we going to see a lot of people out there in GMC? Uh, I don't know. I don't know the answer. Burlington, Vermont is like a fake Portland. Yeah. Okay. I haven't been there. Smuggler's Notch is one of those places I want to get to. Matt says people get shot in Kansas City. Eh. People get shot in all sorts of major cities. Just because someone, you know, it happened to a golfer on the course by some random, like, nut job. That could have happened at any particular course in any major city. It could happen here in Milwaukee. It could happen in, you know, Chicago suburbs. It could happen in uh, Florida, in any Tampa course. Like, any major city where there could be possible gun violence. I, I mean, that's just... I, I, I think you're joking, but just in general. Go to Japan, Arthur says. I... I've been to Japan. Went to Japan Open in 2010. Um, if I go to Japan again, I need to bring my wife and kids. <laughs> um, or when I come back, there might not be wife and kids. So I have to decide next year. I'm thinking either I need to look at the schedule, what happens for the events next year. But if Japan is a big event, I'd like to go there. Otherwise, I might head over to the European events next year. I think it could be cool because I don't have, not that I have a ton of friends in Europe, but I know people over there like that are in the media. I'd love to sit and chat with them and meet them and shake hands. I don't know anybody in Japan, but Japan was cool to go to 12 years ago. You know, you went to the Japan Open, got treated like royalty. We went to Tokyo for a night and partied with a bunch of golfers. And it was just, went to a place called Bar, uh, Milwaukee Bar in Japan, which I thought was kind of fun. So, who knew? What else? Anything else on the, uh, I saw somebody had some comments about things to chat about. Oh, some of the cool shots that we saw. Um, we saw that drive by AB on hole 17. That was phenomenal. The, that could be one of the best golf throws. Not obviously probably the best golf throw on that particular hole, but maybe one of the, the furthest golf shots that we ever see. That low ceiling crush and I'm going to say that I don't I don't throw the word hero around very often. But that cameraman that caught that, what a hero. Because <laughs> uh, I probably would have wet myself. Because that disc looked like it was coming right at his face. And he was zoomed in enough where obviously it looked that way. But then it hyzered out right in front of him. And he whip panned around. I, I, there's no way I could have done that. Because I would have thought that disc is hitting me in the face. And the last thing I want to do is get hit in the face with an AB driver. So. Yeah. That cameraman was awesome. Perfect spot. Perfect everything for that shot. Ryan Pilcher says the Garmin and UDisc partnership is some news that you didn't touch on yet. I don't know a ton about it, honestly. I know they've got a Garmin watch. It's it it, it does 
watch stuff now, like an Apple Watch or anything like that. And UDisk is integrated into it. I think it, what does it do? It tells distances, I'm assuming, because Garmin is like a GPS company, or at least it used to be. Who knows what they are now? Considering everyone has this GPS on their phones, no one buys, no one goes up and buys a Garmin anymore. <laughs> Bought a Garmin for somebody like 12 years ago or 13 years ago for my wife for her car. She loved it. And then within like two years, it was obsolete because we all had it on our phone. So. Um, yeah, so I don't, I'm not, I'm not too familiar with the, with the UDisk Garmin integration. Um, I, I love that UDisk is getting outside integration. That's cool. Is Garmin a competitor to Bushnell at all? In some ways, if you're, if you're figuring out distances with your Garmin, or is that more of like a, a health tracker versus a distance? Like, Distance to the pin or how far did I throw? I I don't know. So it would be it would be weird, although not impossible, to have the Udis Garmin sponsorship when we have a Bushnell thing. I, yeah. It's great. Competition is great. I love competition. I think it's healthy, it makes everyone better. Hopefully we can see more outside companies finding ways to integrate into disc golf. Uh, Jay Tyre says, who's the gal in the AB's practice videos? Um, I, I, I don't watch any AB's practice videos. I know he's he goes to ASU. I think he's got a girlfriend there. Um, maybe it's her. I think the blonde girl who I've seen in one in his Instagram posts a couple times. So maybe is, is, is that who you're talking about? I don't know. But so. Uh, Carney says, I know they got to get paid, but come on, yeet. Hooligan discs is, (laughs) let me, let me give the, let me give the corporate sponsor, uh, comment. Hooligan discs is a valued partner for the disc golf network. Now let me give you my take. It's a silly name for a disc that is clearly I feel like it's even like a year too late for Yeet. Like I was hearing that like three and two years ago. And so if your if your goal is to just kind of make yourself stick out, which clearly it is, and you, you can go with the Yeet, which is I think a silly word. And of course, it's the sponsor activation. They're obligated to you know say someone yeeted a disc, which you know is slang for throw it or throw it hard or something like that. And it's sponsored by hooligan, which I think is a great company. Uh, Is the name of the disc great? Maybe it is for them. Maybe it's working out awesome for them. Maybe they're getting a ton of uh, sales from this. I don't know. I I, I haven't heard. I don't see their books and they're not going to share that with me. Um, But me personally, as a 44 year old guy and most of our commentators probably feel Stupid saying it repeatedly. Like, look at that yeet. He yeeted the disc. Like, no, we don't say that. Like, that's not in our vocabulary. That, that is that is clearly being played up. And 
Um, I, I know it annoys some people, but I, you know, whatever. If it, if it's working out for Hooligan, I'm happy for him, and I'm happy I don't have to say yeet anymore because I'm an old man, and yeah, I should be still saying radical because that's what it was when I grew up, Kawabunga or something. JVD, when is Sirius XM Radio going to die? I've been seeing ads from them, and it's hard to believe they're still a thing. I, I don't think they're dying anytime soon. <laughs> I know this is off topic, Sirius XM Radio, but aren't they in every new like new car? You get like a three month, uh, or every car you buy, you get like a three month subscription to XM Radio. A lot of people like it. My father in law has it, has like a little mini one in his sunroom that he sits and listens to the Jimmy Buffett station on, or the country station when I'm there. And then they can play it out to their backyard fire pit. Like, I don't think it's dying anytime soon. It seems like you would think it would die with like free Pandora and all these other things, but I don't know. We got to drive, man. Boxes. I know disc golf has a culture, but here's who advertises on Spotify. Sports coverage, food, beer, cars and trucks, and insurance companies. That's the money disc golf needs to tap into. Yeah, I agree. And that covers a lot of things. Um, Golf does more cars. Football does more trucks. It's, you know, and NASCAR does more trucks. I mean, you're not usually seeing a Cadillac commercial probably during NASCAR. You're going to see the Ford F-150 commercial. You know, but if you're watching golf, you're probably seeing the newest Cadillac commercial. That's just you know the nature of the culture. Um, insurance companies they sponsor getting to everybody. I, I I would love to see more of those come in. Um, beer, maybe. Like, uh, we're we're not. I guess it's funny because professionally, or even casually, I don't think we're really known as a as a big beer sport. I think golf is known as more of a beer sport than we are. We're known for other illicit activities, for better or worse. Um, But those aren't allowed to be advertised yet. Food, food should advertise with us. Snacks, maybe. I I don't know. If if you're sitting at home watching, we we, any advertisers? Let's just get them all. I'm not. I'm not preferential to them. Let's bring more money into the sport. I don't know how that helps me in general. Maybe people advertise on our podcast, but we'll see. Emporia had a few get-in-the-hole screamers in the crowd after throws. Do you want more of those guys or fewer? Fewer, Ray. I I heard it once when AB threw on hole one. And I'm not going to lie. It did make me chuckle. This hole one's like a 1,012-foot par five. And AB is the furthest um, furthest yeeter we have, (laughs) the furthest thrower that we have. Um, So that did kind of make me chuckle. If I heard it any other time in the round, which I didn't, I would roll my eyes and ask that guy to be thrown out. <laughs> I don't want to hear it on a, uh, you know, a 250 foot approach. Everybody yelling, get in the hole. Like that's just, please don't, don't ever be that guy. I did not mind the whole one, one where I heard it on AB because I thought it was kind of, but other than that, please, let's not, let's not, let's not do that. Cause every golf highlight we see 
on SportsCenter, there's a get in the hole guy. Just because they, you know, everybody feels like, not everybody, but certain people feel like they need to yell it in every hole. So in the off chance it does get in the hole, for the rest of the, you know, the month, the guy's like, dude, I yelled that right before it went in. It's like, yeah, but how many other times did you yell it? Well, 52 other times, and I got that one. So let's let's not start that as a uh, as a regular thing. A lint roller is a good product to advertise in disc golf. Is it? I don't know. Ricky's mom, woo, like every throw. Dude, that's not Ricky's mom. That's Ari. I mean, I guess you could call her his tour mom. I guess that would be okay. I love Ari. You know, some people find her uh, her wooing to be distracting or worse. I don't know. But I got a soft spot in my heart for Ari. She, she, is, she is what every disc golf manager should strive to be. And I know we don't have many of them. She might be really the only one truly right now. I know we've got some people that help other people on the side, but she's a full-time touring manager. And I think, I swear to God, in the off-season, I want her to take an entire month, right, this month. Ari, I know you're listening because you you, you can't not listen to the show because you love us. Um, I want you to write down everything you do in the month of September. Formulate that into a... um, basically a syllabus. And then in the off season, I want you to hold classes for people who want to be just, I want you to, I want you to start a disc golf manager training program. So guess what? If someone wants to be a disc golf, if John Van Derzen wants to be a disc golf manager, how do I do it? What do I need to do? And I buy your course and whether I need to show up or whether you send me syllabus or an instruction manual, here are all the things that as Ari, I do for Ricky Wysocki or, Things that you are expected to do and make yourself some cash because you're you're knocking it out of the park right now, Ari. And R- Ricky would not be where he is without you. So I think Ari needs to, to jump on this and take care of it and and make that happen. So uh, Ricky's last major win was 2017 USDGC. That sounds right. Did he win USDGC? Yeah. Yeah, I think that sounds right. Yeah, Ricky's gone through a little major drought. Um, That that dude's winning consistently, just not those majors. Ryan Pitcher says no. Yeah, for some reason, I I don't know when Ricky's last major was. But either way. So, uh, Spock says, as far as the manager thing, it's tailored to the individual. Different folks need help, help and or coaching. Um, not managing. I think that's pretty standard. I mean, I'm sure everybody needs some slight different thing, you know. But in general, I think that Ari could teach. Hey, this is what I need to do. This is what you can start with, and obviously, it could complex. Ari doesn't do any disc golf coaching. She's not pointing to Ricky and being like, hey, you need to, you know, you need to tweak your shoulders or dip dip your hips or something. No. That's not what Ari's doing. 
You know, Ari's a manager. She's not a coach. Yeah, 2017 Worlds, not USDGC. Because I would say, I don't think Ricky has a U. Does he have a USDGC win? I don't think he does. Yeah, that's what made me, that's what made me balk. Because I was trying to think. I'm like, Germ? Dickerson? Sexton? Paul? Like, I think those are the last four winners. And Paul again, I think. Yeah, something like that. So, yeah, I don't think Ricky has a USCGC. Yeah, Ryan's saying he's never won. Okay, good. Then I'm not totally wrong. Oh, Spock was saying he was thinking about Ari for a life coach. Yeah, I don't know if Ari... Ari's not really a life coach. I mean, I'm sure she does dip into that. But I think she considers herself more of a manager slash... Again, like tour mom, like I, I think, you know, she probably helps with like laundry a little bit and just probably keeping him on like a food schedule, a healthy food schedule and take, I know she does all the man, the true manager stuff, like takes care of his appointments. She takes care of, you know, scheduling. She does all, you know, booking all that stuff she takes care of. So Ricky doesn't have to think about it. Um, a lot of sales and stuff like that, but I'm sure she dips into some of that other stuff like, you know. Maybe a little bit of life coaching stuff. Like, hey, here's how you do this. But, eh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> she should manage his headwear. Don't doubt the bucket, Carney. Don't doubt the bucket. I, coming from a guy who never let bucket hats go out of style. Because I'm super pasty white and I need to make sure to protect my face and my head from the sun. I never let bucket tats go out of style. So Ricky's just Ricky's getting back on my train. Let me tell you. And, and you know, and he'll jump off that train when they're not in style and I'll keep it because, uh, the older I get, just the bigger, the brims in my hat, I think are going to be just, I'm going to eventually just walk around with an umbrella on my, a giant umbrella on my head. Tim Court says the 2017 Worlds interview. Uh, yeah, I love that. That was a good time. It was it was fun. I was pacing back and forth in the hotel room while Ricky was sitting next to Paul, or sitting next to Paul, uh, sitting next to Terry doing an interview. And I was just there reading comments and walking back and forth. I was giddy. I it was cool that we had Ricky in there that night. So, LOL, we need you in a bucket hat next week, Johnny. Um, I have to... I think it's in the closet. Is right. I've got a bucket hat, and I also kind of have almost like a, almost a hat, kind of like what uh, Johnny Discolf wears, what Corey Morrow wears, with like the bigger brim, kind of the the Panama Jack hat a little bit. I've got one of them as well, which I've been really leaning more towards lately because, again, as I get older, the brim gets bigger. I have to protect my fair skin, you know, just how I work. You know, I think I need my beauty sleep. Uh, JV, did you touch on Eagle's cut on his finger? It really seemed to end his world's bit after that. Eh, maybe. I know he, he, you're right. He was doing well. He rubbed his hand in the dirt to get some grip and he caught some glass in his finger, I guess. I think that's the story. And he cut himself open. And, uh, 
he had a couple good and a couple bad shots after that, and he really will say tailed off. I don't know if that's the reason. If if it was the glass in, on his finger, the cut, so to speak, that that sank him for the week, or if he just, you know, it's probably very difficult to show up and just perform well without having a lot of competition experience. He's got a ton of disc golf experience, but to be in that competition mode, to turn it off and on, it's probably really difficult. So I don't know if that's what if that's what ended it for him or not. Um, uh, we'll we'll ask him next time we see him if you remind us. Ricky has six major wins. The 2016-17 Worlds, 14 Japan, uh, 17 Aussie Open, the 2011 PDGA Championship, and the 2016 European Masters. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, Primo says, super glue for cuts works. Real quick fix. He tried that, honestly. Um, And as Doss said, you kind of got to wait for it to dry up, or if your hands are really sweaty and humid, it's hard to get that going. Uh, Doss, I think, was a big super gluer for a while. And yeah, I think he even maybe wrapped his fingers, too, back in the day, off and on. I'd have to go back and, and look. But, I mean, he was around enough people that, that would do that. So uh, He tried. He he got super glue from his bag and I think tried to put it on his finger. But, I mean, what can you do? Yeah, we got uh, a little off-topic stuff. We got football coming up this weekend. Um, Thursday is the first game, and then a lot of people are doing fantasy football drafts. I last night I did the Disc Golf Media fantasy football draft on the Sleeper app, which is the second time we've used it, second year. Um, we do an auction draft. It's you know I believe we got uh, some gatekeeper guys in there. We've got some Ultra World guys in there. Myself quote-unquote, and Terry, who never couldn't... Terry couldn't tell you the name of three NFL players. Um, There is Seth from DGPT, Corey Merle's in it, uh, Jamie Thomas. Yeah, we've got a a few of us that that have have been in the Disc Golf Media uh, Fantasy Football League. And I think this is, yeah, this is the third year we've done it. No, we've done it for a few years. Because the first year it was really just like, there wasn't much media. <laughs> Jomez was in it back in the first year, and then he got too busy and didn't want to do it anymore, so he dropped out. And um, Yeah, we, you know, we, got to, we got the guys in, and we did an auction draft. So I, I think my team is okay. I haven't looked at all the other... At all the other player or all the other teams um we're gonna skip past like a minute if you don't want to hear about fantasy football real quick um i picked up lamar jackson as my quarterback paid a lot of money for him because it's a super flex so you play two quarterbacks and i got kyler murray so that's where a lot of my money went because i think those are the two most valuable positions in a super flex and then i got like joe mixon uh kareem hunt uh, Damian Pierce as running backs. I got Brandon Ayuk, Pittman, Cortland Sutton as wide receiver, Dalton Schultz, Schultz as the tight end, and a couple guys on the bench 
uh, Nico Collins, Najoku, uh, Zarius White as a backup, Tyler Algier, uh, some some open praise kind of guys. Anyway, we'll see. I have not performed very well in this league in the past. I think I made the playoffs one or two years, and I've never won a championship in this league. So we'll see. I got to beat these other media fools. Got to beat these media fools. So we'll see. Tim Courts, I know you're a big uh, Cincy guy, so Joe Mixon, you're happy with. That's all. That's all I'll talk about with uh, my fantasy football because there's. Almost nothing worse than listening to somebody talk about a fantasy football team. If you're not into fantasy, it's like not even real football. Like it's one thing to even dislike or hear somebody talk about the football game. If you're not into football, but then to hear somebody talk about a fake football game. Yeah, I can understand that. Nobody wants that. Ain't nobody want that. So, but I'll try to keep everybody up to date because it is disc golf media. And so when I do beat a team, I will make sure to rub it into their faces on the podcast. How did you not draft the Paul Macbeth of QBs? Um, I don't know who you're talking about, Kaiser. I don't know if you're talking about Aaron Rodgers. Mm? Tom Brady? Mm? Tom Brady would be the Paul Macbeth, I would think. Or uh, you're talking Patrick Mahomes? Is he too young to be the Paul Macbeth? I don't know who you're talking about for the Paul Macbeth. But anyway, whoever it was, it went more for than I was willing to pay for one player. Oh, Carney says no fantasy football or sci-fi talk. I can't. You get one or the other, dude. You get one or the other. How about we talk fantasy and not sci-fi? Like uh, New Lord of the Rings or the the dragon one that's out there now that I haven't started to watch yet. Come on. Sci-fi isn't the same as fantasy. Two separate genres. <laughs> um, so... Is there any news on the PDGA front? We've got a we've got a, a a silver series going on this weekend. I don't even know what it is because I'm not involved, so I don't really care. I don't think it's going to get great attendance from our top pros. I don't think they're going to care. I think Canadian Nationals is coming up this weekend, which will be get better than the silver series. So, uh, so we got some discs that were approved. The weapon from Birdie it says here. The, uh, God, I'm getting old. I need to make my text bigger. I moved the studio around so the monitors are further away now. And so the small writing on my little 4K monitor needs to be blown up. Plus, I think my eyes are getting worse and worse. Uh, the Tarka from, uh, Taito Frisbee Golf. Probably why I couldn't read it or I didn't make it. Uh, the Super Dillo from Lone Star. So we got the Lone Wolf from, from Lone Star. The Copperhead from Lone Star. The Blue Bonnet from Lone Star. Lone Star, just Lone Star Discs. You see a lot of advertising for them on at Pro Worlds. And uh, they're coming out with a lot of discs. I think, you know, they're trying to make a small run here. Good for them. Good for them. Um, if you go to the PDGA site, you can see the new pictures on the side. They're very good about that. They've been doing that for a few years. Um, so you see Paul and Tatar on your, your sidebars, which is cool. I like I like that little thing, you know, being able to keep up with everybody as they win. Everything in the PDGA news is all worlds related. 
And we saw what happened at Worlds. Tatar dominated Macbeth. You know, found a way. Did the European Open feel like a bigger event than Worlds seemed like because there was a bigger crowd? Um, That's hard to say. You could say that. I could see how that would be. It, I could see how you could feel like it was bigger. It's hard for me to, to, to make that determination because I have a, a built-in bias for Worlds. Because for me, and I, I kind of explained this to somebody a couple days ago. We see that Ricky has six majors. I couldn't have told you any one of those other majors. Because, you know, Climo, I think, has 18 major wins. What everyone talks about is 12 world championships. Because I couldn't tell you what the other six were. Because back then, growing up into disc golf, and when I say growing up, I mean from like 17, 18 through mid-20s, there were majors, but they didn't feel like majors. They just kind of felt like slightly different big events. Everybody cared about Worlds. That was the only event you cared about. Worlds. Yeah, oh, cool. There's a major. There's the Players' Cup. Awesome. There's a European Open. Hmm, Japan Open. Cool, you won Japan Open. Congratulations. And maybe that was just from a from a, a fan perspective that there wasn't as much emphasis put on them. That That's why I didn't care about them. Maybe the players care about them just as much. I don't think so, but I don't know. So for me, all these other majors feel second tier. And for me, you know, the number for the number for Climo is 12. That's the number. He's got 18 majors, but 12 is the number. And Macbeth has 18 majors now, I believe. And that's what we're comparing him against cuz uh, you can go back in history and reevaluate what really mattered cuz at the time it was different. I don't know. Like I just I, I didn't care about ma- other majors other than Worlds. And we didn't have all the media we had now. We had Disc Golf Monthly. We had Disc Golfer Magazine. So th- there there wasn't the the push for some of these other ones, maybe. Maybe that's why it didn't matter, because Worlds was the event. And then USDGC came out, and that started to gain more traction. And even the first few years of that was like, eh. Like, like it's a really cool idea. You know, you get... You know, players from every state in there and everyone gets to play and your state coordinator gets to bring someone in and the and the winner got a good paycheck and this and that. But even that, I don't feel like, feel like really kind of, I don't think anyone really, really cared outside of the, the winner like the first few years. It was cool to see Kenny win the first couple. Like, oh, yeah, he won the USCGC. He played against the best players in the world. But it felt, honestly, it felt like a limited field. And I know all the best players were there, but it wasn't Worlds. It wasn't like everybody could come and play. You had to qualify to get in. You had to earn your way in. And there were good players regionally that couldn't get in. You know, we had guys in Wisconsin that were, you know, at the time, you know, over 1,000 rated. They weren't, they, they weren't in USDGC. Worlds, if you wanted to play, you went and played. You signed up. I played Worlds. So, you know, the 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 quote unquote best players from around the country came to play worlds, all your top regional pros USDGC. You can't just show up and play. You have to qualify to get in. So to me, well, it felt like the competition was tighter. It wasn't as robust. So it felt a little less to me. 
and maybe that was me uniquely. I don't know. Now, now it's different because you can't just be any Yahoo and get uh, into an Elite Series event. So they're limited, and USCGC is limited, and Worlds is limited now. Like, Worlds still a little less so. Like, Worlds, more people can get in than probably even an Elite Series these days. And USDGC is the same way now. It's it's still limited. It's still qualify only. So I don't know what I'm saying. But I think USDGC now really feels like that, like I said, like an A minus event. Like Worlds is still the AA plus. USDGC feels like it's a little bit more prestigious than European Open. I think if you if you ranked them to a player who doesn't have a major, the order that you want to win them. It goes Worlds, USDGC, European Open, Champions Cup. And that's only because Champions Cup isn't as prestigious because they don't have it yet. In 10 years, that might change. I don't know. But that's the order that I'm fairly certain everybody wants to win them in. Unless maybe if you're a European player, you probably want to win. You probably want a Worlds, European Open, then USDGC. So take that for what you will. Uh, USCGC did pay out much better than Worlds for a few years. Yeah, they did. Um, they, they 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 had higher payouts for than Worlds, but again, payout it wasn't a World Championship. I mean, that just that has a ring to it. You're the World Champion. You know what sounds better if you're the World Champion, if you were like the golf's World Champion, or if you're the Masters Champion. Like, I don't know. Like I know Masters is more prestigious than and golf doesn't have a world champion, I don't believe. They've got a tour champion, but no world champion. So like but if you told me the two of them, I would right away say, Oh yeah, the world champion is better than this Masters guy, this Masters champion. But we all know in golf, the Masters is like the big event that most people probably want to win. Other than the tour championship, which is a shit a lot of money. Beep. I'll beep that out later. I really won't. Um yeah, it's a bunch of money. So, yeah, exactly. The PGA Championship is less prestigious than the Masters. Yeah, but now if you called it the PGA World Championships, now we're talking. It's funny that. Uh, all of our players have... We're talking about van life on the board. And a lot of these players are living the van life. And for the last few years, culturally in the U.S., van life in general with the regular populace has been becoming way more popular. I don't know where we stand right now. I haven't really dipped my toe in that pond to kind of to kind of gauge that out to see whether or not van life is still a popular solution for people, but during the pandemic and even before a little bit, it was starting to gain a lot of popularity. Like I said, I, one of our friends runs a company who's, who creates these vans. And so, you know, they're banking on that. Once vans are better in stock, they're hoping that their business takes off. And I wish them the best of luck, but I I don't know where we stand as a, as a culture in the U S right now for van life. I don't know if it's still hot. I don't know if it's still the thing. Like 
tiny houses were a big thing. Aha. Uh, for a while. You know? But you know what? It's not on TV anymore. That tiny house show ended years ago. It's only on in reruns now. So. I don't know. But it's it, it it's a a lifestyle that disc golfers now strive to. They strive to be the van life. You know, they want to get to that position where they can just tour around the country in their RV or their van, the converted van, and just live. Like, that's a dream. To be able to make your ends meet and not have a 9-to-5, just play disc golf all the time? Why not? So... <laughs> David says, many van lifers on YouTube bought homes and got pregnant. Sure. I don't know. I don't follow. I didn't follow enough of them. I didn't follow any of them, to be honest, because it was never a lifestyle for me. I never, there's, I can't imagine anything less appealing to me because I have, I've, I mean, I've had kids now for 10 years, 10 years for my youngest, 13 for my oldest. I can't imagine trying to live in a van with like a wife and a kid, much less two kids. If it was just me and my wife, maybe, but I kind of like my house. Like, I like doing stuff around the house. I, I'm a, I'm, I'm a total dad. Like, I've become a total dad in some aspects. You know, you're almost your stereotypical. I, I'm today. I signed up for an auction because there's a local company that does auctions for real estate or not real estate. Sorry, um, estate sales. I got an alert, I think it was on Facebook or something, that they had this big auction for um, power tools, you know, shop tools, big table saw, saw stop table saw. It was like a $2,500 table saw. And a bunch of Festool, which are like the premium um, like power tool brand. And I got excited. I was like, whoa, cool. I'm going to sign up for this auction and see if I can get some of this stuff cheap. So I put in a bid for this giant table saw, this cabinet style table saw for $1,000. I want a really nice table saw. Got wheels and moving and I have to move it in my garage. There's no set spot for it. And the current bid, I put like a max bid of like 1000 The current bid was like 260 Because today was the first day the auction opened. And I clicked on it and it said, okay, cool. My max bid will be $1,000. I click submit bid. And then it went ding. It's like, oh, cool. Ding! You've been outbid. It's like, ooh! All right, so somebody else's max bid is bigger than that. Okay, I guess I don't need that tool. <laughs> I, I, because I, I don't need a $1,000 table saw or a $2,000 table saw. Or I think if you max these things out, they can be like three or $4,000. But I thought if I could get one cheap, I'd like it. But I don't need it. And so I just chuckled and went, <laughs> I guess I won't be getting it. And my wife is happy because she doesn't want me to spend the money. But anyway, I'm a total dad that way now. Like, I, I want to have a little workshop out in my garage. I did a bunch of lawn work yesterday. I dug up, I dug 12 holes in my yard. And because it looked like there was an old fence in my yard. So I had like these circles about six feet apart on the very edge of my yard that were all gravel. Like, it's like a normal yard except for these spots and all six feet apart, just like rocks. 
And every once in a while, my lawnmower would hit a, like, just nick a rock. And on Sunday morning, I went to mow the lawn on, on my on my nice riding lawnmower. And there was an area that I hadn't really gotten before. I usually get it with a, uh, a weed whacker because it's kind of out of the way. But I thought, I wonder if I can get in there with my with my rider. Like, if I kind of back my way in and kind of back up and get in there, I can get that corner. Well, I get myself all lined up and I get back there. And suddenly it was like, boom, I hit a little bump. And then I hear, boom, boom. And I was like, what is that? And I drive away. Back there, which I didn't notice, was a stump. So I hit a stump with my blade and I bent the crap out of my riding lawnmower blade. So I was so then for like the next five seconds while I noticed that I did that, I put a big tear in my yard as the lawnmower blade bent way out of whack. So I stopped it, lifted it up, you know, drove it back to my garage, took the, the deck off, looked at it, and was like, ugh, I gotta order a new lawnmower blade. Because I'm not gonna bend the other one back. I mean it's bent to hell. It's just easier to buy a new 25 or $40 blade or whatever they are. But that's when I, that's when I saw all the spots of gravel. So I thought, you know what I'm going to do today? Because I'm sick of my lawnmower nicking the rocks. I'm going to dig up all these holes. I spent the whole day digging holes. And then I took the, 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 the gravel and dirt and I built a sifter out of some spare wood and some chicken wire. And I sat and I sifted the rocks out. And I kept the dirt. I put the dirt back in. Then I put the topsoil on. And now I've got a bunch of rocks I don't know what to do with. I'll probably ditch them in like a, in like a ditch. <laughs> I guess, yeah, ditch them in a ditch. What a great place to put them. Um, and I couldn't have been happier. Honestly. And then later that day, yesterday, I went to my garage. I was cleaning up my garage. And I had a whole bunch of screws. Like just wood screws that are lying around from projects you buy, whatever. Number 10s, number th- Sixes, number eights, and all different lengths. I organized them in my toolbox by size. And I thought, well, that's going to be easy for me to find. And today my wife needed a screw. Uh, Okay. I know what I just said. And yes, it's very funny. I was at work and she needed a, uh, (laughs) an attaching tool, small wood screw. Um, (laughs) I get it. It's funny. Anyway, she opened up my toolbox and she was like, oh, how nice. They're all organized for me. So she knew right where to get one from. And she literally called me and she was like, yeah, exactly. Jokes. You you can clip that out and use it whenever you want. Uh, She called me. She's like, holy crap. Thanks for organizing that yesterday. Because she saw me sitting on the garage floor, like going through them. She's like, I was able to find exactly what I needed. I was like, oh, cool. So I felt a little justified in my organizational insanity. But yeah, total dad things. I burnt stuff yesterday. I started to, uh, uh, the previous owners left like this, these old uh, raised planter uh, gardens that were all rotted wood now because they'd been sitting outside and it didn't look like they used pressure treated wood. So it was all rot. And so I took, I taught my kid how to take them all apart and, just start cut them in half and we started burning them. There was like three or four of them and they were all just rotted wood, wet rotted wood. So we just did that, burned that. I got to teach my kid how to use tools, more tools yesterday. You know? Anyway, I'm a total dad now. So, and it's all happened in the last like two years. I, I, I used to be like a cool dad. Like I, I wasn't into a lot of that stuff and I'm slowly turning into the, like the, 
the not so cool dad, the cool, the dads that you like, I grew up with like, Oh yeah, that guy, he's out in the garage all the time. Eh, it happens. Anyway, patreon.com slash matchbox TV. If you want to be a supporter of this fine podcast of me rambling on about my Labor Day weekend. Uh, Goose needs a signature disc, but which disc? Yeah, I don't know what what Goose is going to get. You have to assume next year he's going to be put up to the the top team, the top touring team with Innova. He's going to get a tour stamp. I don't know if they take someone off the team. I'd have to look. Or if they're just going to add someone to the team. I don't know what Discraft's discs are. Because obviously we got Dickerson with the buzz. And I forget who has the zone. Like, the zone makes a lot of sense because he seems to throw it a lot. But I don't know. I don't think it matters. I, I don't think it matters in general. And I don't think that he should necessarily get first choice. At what tour series disc has, just because he, he tied for second for worlds, but there's other people on the team that have more priority than him. So, is Brody going to change company from Discraft? I, I don't know why he would. I think he's got a pretty good deal with Discraft. I think that he can, it, sound, it seems like he can get custom stamped stuff and, and stamp discs, an allotment of them when he wants, and turn around and sell them. And so he can make money and Foundation can make money that way. Um, I, I know Foundation gets discs from other manufacturers, but I, I don't know why Discraft... I mean, I mean, unless there's a real issue with him and Discraft. I know he, I know him and Paul have their little uh, bickering thing, but they don't really talk to each other anymore, so I don't know if I wouldn't call it that. But, but yeah. Uh, Brody does not have a, a... I mean, Brody's got a zone... But not like a tour stamp zone. Brody doesn't have a tour stamp. But he he has like the dark horse zones and different things like that. We're talking tour series discs. So, I don't know. I don't know. I I mean, he'll, he'll probably leave Discraft at some point. A lot of players leave. I don't think that's anything surprising when he goes. The question is, can he, because right now he is a, let's say, I feel like he's a a top 30 kind of guy. Like, it's not surprising to see him in 20th. Occasionally, he's going to jump up to a top 10. We saw it at DDO. You know, uh, at Worlds, he didn't perform. You know, he needs to make sure to perform at the big events. And... He's a regular caching pro, so I think he deserves to be sponsored if you're looking at it that way. I guess it depends on what what the company is going to get out of it. You know, Does he push Discraft a lot? Or does he push Foundation, Dark Horse, Brody stuff a lot? I mean... I don't know. I like Brody. He's a nice enough guy. I met him a few times. Seems cool. I, I don't follow him intently on like his socials, on his YouTubes and stuff. So I don't know what type of promotion he's doing for Discraft in general, or if it's primarily, you know, Foundation. If it's primarily Dark Horse, I, I don't know any of that stuff. So 
So is it going to shock me when he if he leaves? No. Would it shock me if he stayed? No. I don't know. Uh, Ella Hansen can't be too proud to be on UC's team. I wouldn't say that at all, Carney. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know Ella's stance on the UC situation. I, I don't know how she feels about it. I don't know if she if it matters. She's probably proud to be on Discmania. You, UC's just the CEO. Discmania is a team. You know? You've got a lot of people there. Just, I, I know UC is a very big head of that team. He's very front-facing on that, on that, not even that team. I'm going to put it this way, of that company. But I, I don't know if her versus Simon versus Eagle, if any of them have, have, a, have whatever, or if they care. You know, some people look at UC situation differently. I don't know. What I do know is Ella had a, a, a really good week at Worlds. <clears throat> I know she would have liked to finish stronger, but, uh, you know, she got the distance championship and she was playing very well. So I'm ex- she's got an exciting future in front of her for disc golf, no matter where she is. Uh, Dust says Brody promotes Discraft molds a lot. Cool. Yeah, then then you know what? If he's selling Discraft discs and is pushing it, then he should stay there. Or then Discraft should want him to stay there. You know, that's that's good. I'm, I'm again. I don't know. I don't. I follow him on Twitter. I follow him. Uh, that's it. I follow him on Twitter. So I don't see it a lot on Twitter. If he does it on his YouTube's. That's awesome, you know? So, but I don't watch any of the YouTube stuff. It t- it takes a lot to get me to watch a, a YouTube disc golf video. Not going to lie. Like, I, I, most of them just bore me to tears. It, almost any shot by shot coverage, I can't stand to watch. Um, I find it dull and lifeless. When, especially after watching live, like again, I've always said I watch them. If I watch them, it is strictly for data input. I need to know something. Um, I need to I need to look at how did again how did Jomez handle this situation? Oh, Jomez has a drone now. Let me go look at that and see what theirs looks like. The graphics of things. I need to know who the winner of an event is or some something specific about leading up to there. So I so I'm more researched. I watch everything almost at 2x speed. I, I get the general gist of it. Almost no commentary. Um, most disc golf stuff. I, I, I haven't even watched the Fierce documentary. I haven't watched the Holy Shot yet. I can't bring myself to do it. And I want to at some point. It's just timing. That means I have to sit down. I have to sit down and find a time to watch it when I don't feel guilty that I'm sitting down and watching a disc golf thing and not spending time with my family after I spend so much time on disc golf doing other things. So if I were just to tell my family, like, ah, just leave me alone for the next two hours while I watch this documentary on the middle of a Saturday, um, I would feel very guilty about that. And if I'm sitting down at night with my family, whether we're playing a game or watching TV or something, they don't want to watch that. So it, it's, it's a lot. I, I need to, I do need to watch them, and I do want to watch them. Eh, it's hard. 
it's so hard. <laughs> like, it's just, you know, my life is live disc golf. Like, you know, uh, I love watching live disc golf. I turn on live disc golf when I'm not producing it. I watch the disc golf stream stuff live disc golf. I love live disc golf. After that, it's like I like watching NFL games. But if you told me, again, there's a, a Tom Brady documentary, I don't care. I really don't. I haven't watched the the Jordan documentary. Sorry, Mo. I know you watch it like once a month, the, the full the full ESPN thing. But I haven't watched that. Like, it just, there's so many things. So many things. But we'll see. Yeah. How am I supposed to watch that when there's a Lord of the Ring things on? You know? I haven't even got to that yet. Gosh. Dust says, I kind of have to avoid live disc golf at the moment so I can do a better job recording the post-produced stuff. Yeah, I can see that. Dust having to, um, if if you're, you don't want to be fake and try to manufacture surprise because that just sounds disingenuous. So if you're kind of avoiding it, like I get knowing results. I can totally see that. Like, oh, you know, Paul won worlds. Even if you're going to do commentary on the world's, let's say second card gatekeeper, you're going to know who wins, but to avoid it and not see the shots and be genuinely surprised when someone throws an awesome drive or something like that. I can understand that. So, <laughs> Dust says he doesn't know what happened at World, so don't spoil it. Yeah, awkward. Do we have anything else? Do we have anything else? It's midnight right now. I have talked my my throat out. Um, Mushroom Hunter says, are we live? We are live right now. We're live, 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 live. 7 a.m. in Sweden right now. What's Terry up to now? Um, Good question. I'm guessing his flight is either just landing or very close to landing. I don't know. Um, I have two comments on my Facebook. Oh, it's just, just regular comments. A couple groups I'm part of. Streaming Idiots is one of the names of the groups. It's a bunch of people that like to stream. And... Do lots they do a lot of sports streaming and things like that. So I I enjoy this. I, I learn a lot from this um to help be better at streaming. I like to know what's going on. I like to be informed. Um you know, I there, whenever something new comes out, I want to be the first person to try it. I, I want to be the one that introduces it to disc golf or to the disc golf network. So if something crazy cool comes up, like hey, check Hey, Jeff or Seth or Sam or whoever I'm talking to or Gary or Tosi. Like, let's, here's something I just learned. Let's try this out. And, you know, uh, one of the things they're going to try this weekend. So when you encode a video, um, the, uh, we're going to get te- a little techie here. When you encode a video with H264, which is the codec, you have a di- couple different presets. Fastest, very fast, faster, fast, medium, 
and slow, I think. I think literally those are the names. I forget them. And the faster you encode it, the less processor power it takes because it is doing a um, an adequate job, but maybe not quite perfect. It, we'll just pre- imagine, you know, the, you're, you're, you're panning your head really fast left to right. You're seeing everything, but it might be a little blurry. The slower you pan your head, the more information you're taking in and the clearer everything is. So we've always done the second fastest tier, which is, I think, very fast. We're lowering that this weekend to see if it a affects our broadcast, if we notice any difference. Because honestly, from all the videos I've watched, and most people talk about this when they're streaming video games, the different and Dust probably knows a little bit more about maybe some of this stuff. When you're streaming video games, you can choose, you know, fast, faster, fastest. It'll give you a little bit more uh, clarity and maybe a little more crispness. So we're going to start maybe pushing that down a little bit to go from faster or very fast, maybe to faster, and to see if it affects the processors of our computers because if suddenly our computers start maxing out cpu usage because that's what it uses then we don't want to do that because everything's been pretty adequate right now and so we're going to kind of start messing around with that stuff as far as how we want to encode the cpu usage um things of that nature to see if it helps maybe with the look of the broadcast a little bit And these are all things we can do now that we're in the cloud so um we use vmix dust Almost all of our systems are vMix, not OBS and not a TriCaster. TriCaster currently, I don't believe, is in the cloud. Uh, OBS we could install. I think the guys over at, uh, what is it, League Night? Is that what it's called? The one that Jamie Thomas and Matt Graham are on? Is that League Night? I forget all the names of the DGN ones. They use OBS. It's a pretty standard encoder streaming system. vMix is a little bit more professional, prosumer, we'll say. I only use vMix because it had built-in replay at the time. OBS didn't have it. I got used to it. It works out great. But for most simple broadcasts, OBS is sufficient. Uh, have I tried NVENC um, through NVIDIA? I have not done NVENC because I don't believe that vMix supports it. Um, as far as encoding on the GPU, correct. Obviously, we use NVIDIA GPUs for our a lot of our processing and that's what vmix uses so you know that's that's the primary thing uh but as far as actual encoding i don't believe vmix does it yeah vmix is used a lot in esports yeah vmix actually is used uh league of legends uh, they were on the bleeding edge of uh using vmix out in the cloud so putting it out on a server and amazon um, i actually talked to some of their guys way back when when i was because I tried to do this before, like put it in the cloud, way before it was even reasonable. And it didn't work with crap because you need a good video card and a computer in order to stream. Well, cloud computers, nobody was using them for anything video related because they were meant to be more processor related for database and crap like that. Not video. No one does video in the cloud at the time. This was six years ago when we first started Smashbox. That was my dream. A couple of years ago, Amazon decided to start putting video cards in their cloud computers because people wanted to do video processing and stuff like that. And once that happened, everything exploded and every in a good way, like the, the everything was open up. So I like literally before almost most major companies were doing this, I tried it and it didn't work very well. <laughs> it took 
a long time in, in order for it to get it. And I had to actually learn from other people on what they did to make it work. And there were other people like me that were like, hey, I bet you I can do this. And I got on groups and we all kind of, I, I say we all learned from each other. I learned from those guys. I didn't really do a lot of teaching or that because they were smarter than me when it comes to this stuff. Um, but I learned a lot from them. So cool, cool stuff. Now a lot of people do it. Like it's just, it's kind of common now in like a lot of esports. So yeah, yeah. It's like so for like uh, Dust is saying for his Valorant streams, uh, they use Vmix, which is nice because it it's it's got really easy call methods. So like your guests can call in, which is what we use here at Smashbox, the Vmix call. It has a good processing. You, you can very easily connect multiple VMixes together f- to bring in graphics and replay, and that we do all of that stuff. It's it's pretty nice. I need a translator and a glass of water, says Ray. That's okay. Um, it's 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 just you're 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 not. This is all way beyond most of what we're doing, and it's again, it's one of the reasons I got into broadcasting so hard because it was more computing it was less me sitting in front of a an old school switcher with buttons and and this this black box that i couldn't i didn't know what was in there it all turned into computers and that's something i'm good at like servers and computers i can know that stuff inside and out cloud computing i do i do it for my job like that's why i was able to take on to it most guys most video guys had to learn computers which i think is harder than a computer guy learning software, which is what I had to do. You know, they know they knew all about, you know, BNC connectors. Like if you talk to some of our guys on the ground, they know cameras and all that hard physical switching devices inside and out. You know, they'll tell you exactly how long a BNC cable can be before it starts losing, you know, impedance and all this other crap that I don't know. But once you turn it into bits and bytes and it's just a program. I can figure that out. And that's why I took to it way easier. Like I said, easier for a computer guy, I think, to learn video stuff than a video guy who was grew up in like you know, uh sports broadcasting or television broadcasting to learn computers. But we'll see. Yeah, nobody uses Linux. Not in, not in the broadcasting world. At best, it's like a like an uh, a, a burned in Linux app inside of a a machine. But as far as actual broadcasting online, nobody uses Linux. Um, actually, that's not true. Um, there's a different way that we could be pushing out called Sienna Cloud. So right now we install. It's, it's Sienna Cloud is basically a way to transfer video between locations. It uses NDI in the background, and you know you want to go from one cloud to another cloud. There's these different Sienna plugins that let you do everything. I think that's all run on Linux behind the scenes, but it's mostly a, a graphic a GUI, a graphical user interface for me. So. Yeah. Carney says he just needs a terminal and a main page to figure that out. All right, guys, I'm going to start wrapping this up here. Uh, I've 
when, when we when we get into the too much tech talk is when I know that uh, we need to get out. All cloud storage uses Unix. Yeah, a lot of it. Most of it is probably Unix based in the back end for that stuff. Um, yeah, I mean even even Macs are really originally just Unix boxes with a nice front end. To be honest, it's le- it's becoming a little bit less and less than more Apple messes with their stuff, but that's, you know, whatever. They're not using Windows machines, that's for sure, for for that type of cloud-based computing. But anyway, I digress. I want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening to me babble tonight without Terry. Um, Again, I reached out to Aaron Gossage. Props to you, man. Uh, I I know you couldn't make it tonight, but hopefully we'll get you on soon. And... uh, what are we on? Episode 419. Oh, the big 420 next week, if you know what I mean. I don't. I've never been that guy. Um, <laughs> I don't know if Terry's going to be here next week either. He might be gone for like two or three weeks, which is kind of funny because the studio is still kind of in shambles, which is fine. It'll give me a chance to, to, do, to do some of this stuff. But I want to thank everybody for sitting and listening to my 2022 Pro Worlds recap. Um, again, if you want to support the podcast or advertise with us or something, you can reach out to me at john at smashbox.tv or john at skipbase or johnny v at skipbase or john at skipbase.com, Facebook or Twitter. I don't care. Reach out. If you want to advertise? We're here. We'll listen. Um, but hopefully Terry landed safe. He's in Sweden, I hope, right now and uh, probably getting getting his luggage or something right now. So thanks to him for skipping out tonight and forcing me to do by myself. Anyway, for myself and my missing partner in crime, I'm Johnny V and this is episode 419, your 2022 world's recap. I'll see you next week when you step inside the smash box. Thank you to our $2 and above patrons. Your name is listed below in the credits. If you are interested in being listed as a producer in the Smashbox TV credits and supporting this and other fine podcasts, please visit patreon.com slash smashbox TV. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.